This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is all here and it is Wednesday, uh, four days before Christmas Eve. And Jeff looks tired. I'm just trying to fight off this cold. Yeah, I wonder where you got that. Hmm. See, you were sick, so you stayed home. Yeah. I'm going to be sick Friday, and you're going to stay home. (laughs) So, (laughs) something's wrong here. Well, you just don't know how to time your, your your sickness. You don't know how to do it. You're you're young. You're new. You're young to this. Maybe it's because I don't have any sick pay. No, it's not that. It's not that. <laughs> it's when you're my age, you understand your body better. So I know really? when my body's starting to just say, "Yeah, we're gonna sit this one out." Wow. Yeah. So it has nothing nice. to do with the fact that if I don't work, I don't get paid. No. Okay. No. Nope. Nothing like that. I don't know where you. Where do you get that idea? Well, it's you're, not all about money, Jeff. You're the doctor, so. <laughs> yes, I am. Hey, we have got, oh, man, I'm excited about all of our shows. We've got so much to talk about. Plus, we're all going to be a lot richer. <gasps> they passed a tax bill. With an asterisk, right? For yes. the average there a technicality? Of about, yeah, they, for about eight years. Yeah. Well, but you know what, again? Hey, if you can give me coupon, discount coupons to to give me a lot of savings for eight years, I'll take them. Sure. Then, you know, whoever's in charge in eight years is going to be in a lot of trouble because how do you reverse out of this? I mean, yeah. short, of the, short of the entire country falling apart, this is going to be a hard one to reverse. But um, it's th- there is an asterisk associated. Apparently, they passed a bill, but they have to repass the bill. There's a couple things they missed. It didn't quite jive with uh, Senate rules. No, no. Which was the whole point. So it's a law that doesn't necessarily – you know, meet the law. So the Senate kicked out like three provisions that uh, didn't meet with their rules, and so the House has to re-vote on it today. Even though they, any... se- even yeah. though they celebrated voting on it yesterday, they got to do it again today. <laughs> Are there going to be any surprises? No, they're just going to vote. It'll pass. Any eleventh hour? No, those happen next month when they have to go back in and <laughs> fix all the problems that they find once people start really digging into it. You mean once people start reading it? Yeah. I mean, there was one reporter yesterday that went around and talked to 18 Republicans in the House. Well, it took 18 Republicans in the House to describe whatever feature of the bill, which was like – Yeah. I, the bill was how many um, tax brackets are in the bill. Oh. Right? Yeah. They've, they've condensed them. And it took 18 Republicans – he talked to 18 members of the House and he documented on Twitter sure. as he did it before someone gave him the right answer. But I bet they didn't talk to the three people that knew. See, that's the problem. Well, You don't I, talk to the other 500 and whatever. You talk to the only three people that knew. Everyone knows that. Like if I need to get my computer fixed at work, I don't go ask everyone else. I just go to the only three people at work that know how to fix my computer. Sure. But you, but you think of a bunch of people walking into a yeah. room to vote on something no. to redo the tax no. laws. Maybe you have no. some basic idea. No. 
especially since that's the big feature is it simplifies the code. Right. It's Allegedly. Yeah. But nobody knows how simple it is. No. That's the, see, that's what's messing them up. It's, it's so simple. It's supposed to be on a they postcard. They don't know how simple it is. It's supposed to be on a postcard. It's not, but that was the whole goal. Yeah. It's too complicated to put on a postcard. So. The, the, this is the neat thing. This is this is following the same model the Democrats used. Uh-huh. Now the Republicans are using it. We You will know it when you read it someday after yeah, the yeah. bill's we'll passed. Yeah, we'll read it after. Nancy Pelosi said that about the health bill. Yeah. We have to pass this, then we can read it. Like, it makes what? like it makes a lot of how many times do you buy a car, bring it home, and you don't actually read about the owner's manual until you need it down the road. Then every, you're like, what, right. what every time. Yeah. Every time. That's how people work. This is how I buy shoes. Is <laughs> I order them online, they come to my house, I put them on and go, eh, and then I send them back. That's how we're doing legislation now. <laughs> That's right, yeah. It's online ordering. And what's amazing is the country still stands. Well, did we used to think that our were, were our were our leaders much more informed back in the day? I think they like uh, way back in the day they obviously were because they were making the law the first laws. But now it's like I think there was less cameras. Yeah, that's it. Less media for them to talk to, and so they had more cover. They, they also had more time to read, and they that's took their exactly time right. instead of we have to get this done by Christmas. I just want to know: Am I going to get more money for having more kids? <laughs> that's all I want to know. By the way, I wouldn't look at it that way. Why not? Well, you, you, they're not paying you to just keep having kids. Sure they are. That's how I understand it. Well, In the, some ways, it kind of feels like that. <laughs> it does, except the real, the real incentive is that if you have children, then you're, you're helping, so mm. you, they will give you help. Yeah, yeah, that's great. But do I get more money if I have more kids? You know what? The answer to that— uh, 2,000 a head. Yeah. Wait. 2,000 a child. <laughs> yeah, because they're, they're more than a head. Well, they're yeah, a whole body. There's a whole body there, but still. But remember that if even though you get a tax break of two thousand dollars, you still I think that's what it is. they still may cost you ten. Two thousand ahead, that sounds like the correspondence dinner cover charge. It is. If you want to get into the, the correspondence it's for a dinner. table, yeah. I don't think anyone's going to those anymore, are they? Uh yeah, they are. Not the president, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everyone else. Yeah, that would be awkward if he was there. Why would you why would you want to go there and be put down? Well, yeah. Yeah. Just it's better to just Stay at home and put other people down. Make, your, make <laughs> yourself Twitter. a target. What are you going to do? <laughs> That's what you do. All right. Uh, interesting stuff. Well done, I guess. There's a GOP tax plan. And by the way, the biggest legislation they passed in their first year, and they got it right under the wire. Isn't it the only? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. That was neat. Uh, let's get to the rest of the headlines from Terry South. What else should we be focused on, Terry? So, tax bill passed. Uh, 80% of the country will pay lower taxes next year, but the short-term gains come with a cost. The legislation also makes the country's debt problem even worse, the Washington Post reports. Oh, well, that's the negative side. Sure. The GOP decides to cut taxes without offsetting spending cuts, driving up the deficit. That likely will force policymakers in coming years to make difficult decisions about spending cuts, tax increases, or both. The debate could touch on some of the most value-laden questions facing the nation. What type of financial security to provide the elderly? What safety net services should be offered to the poor? And how much the government should try to shrink economic inequality? By the way, the same problems we've been talking about for 50 years? Absolutely. Yeah. So they're still there? Yes. Okay. And Paul Ryan says the social safety net is his next target. Oh, if he's around. Like in January. Wow. When they really? come back, yeah. Ooh, he's going to start knocking down the social uh, net? He, that's his goal, because where are you going to make cuts? Well, defense spending, possibly. Oh, no, no. We can't, we can't do that, no. You could raise taxes on businesses. No, we can't raise taxes. We just lower taxes. You can, you can 
You could quit funding all these other world global organizations. You could. Give less funding to the Clinton fund. But, you know, the social safety net. Nah, boy. And, and many Republicans were kind of like, really? He said that? Because then they're like, we're running for re-election? Can you please not Could say that? Could you wait till the next year? I mean, During 2018. 2018's a big year. Could we do infrastructure? <laughs> Everyone likes roads. Let's oh, do that. Oh, man. Oh, well. A single vote may spell the end of the Republican control in the Virginia House of Delegates. You see this story? This is weird. After flipping 15 Republican seats in the House delegates last month, Democrats appeared to pick up one more vote yesterday after winning a Newport News area, uh, Newport News um, area uh, recount by a single vote per the Richmond oh, Times Dispatch. If the stunning result is confirmed today by a recount or uh, in court, it would throw the House into an extraordinary 50-50 split that would require Republicans and Democrats to share legislative power by one vote. So, Democrat Shelley Simon or Sidmons. Yeah. Uh, Newport News school board member entered the recount in the 94th House District, trailing Republican Dell uh, Delegate David E. Yancey by just 10 votes. David! So when the ballots were retabulated, the unofficial results showed that Simmons, uh, Simons was a 11,608 votes to 11,607 for Yancey. Wow. So the Democrat had 11,608 the incumbent Republicans, 11,607. This is why you need to vote. Yeah, so it comes down to one vote matters in this case, right? Holy cow. Now, when, before and now the, it's completely even, before, 50-50. Before the election, the, the, the House there, the Republicans went into last month's election with a 66-34 to 34 House majority. Whoa. So the Democrats almost gained 30 seats in the House, hmm. or more than 30 now, seats. Virginia to, to used to be like a Republican state, right? But isn't it now kind of swinging more purple? It's kind of turning that way, yeah. So this might, this might, you know, portend the future of purple states. Yes and no. Swingage. Aren't we supposed Virginia's to be unified? Different. Well, they are now. Yeah, they are. Now they're, well, they're actually parody. That they're, is the this definition seems more of divisive than anything else. Yeah, this will be a fight. Mm. So I just found that interesting. No, num- totally. Numbers-wise, one vote. North Amazing. Korea is carrying out tests to load anthrax onto their intercontinental ballistic missiles, oh, a Japanese newspaper reports. Citing an unidentified source tied to South Korean intelligence, the report says Kim Jong-un's regime is testing to determine whether the deadly bacteria will survive the high temperatures involved in a missile launch. Oh, boy. The news comes after the White House warned its national security strategy this week that uh, North Korea is pursuing chemical and biological weapons, which could also be delivered by missile. <sighs> so just positive news. And happy holidays to you. <laughs> <laughs> Anthrax on missiles. But again, I think it's just Kim Jong-un's way of trying to, you know, tussle. You know what Dennis Rodman says? What? He's misunderstood. The leader of hmm. North Korea is just misunderstood. Yeah. He really just wants peace. He doesn't want... You know what he needs? That's it. That's what he needs. That's what he wants. He needs a hug. Somebody needs to get over the... Dennis, we need you to go back to North Korea and stay there and hug little Kim Jong-un. Yeah. He went on... Uh, Dennis Rodman went on uh, Stephen Colbert and talked about this. So you can watch that at some point. <laughs> you know, after the show. I can only imagine. And finally, Elon Musk appears to have sent his private cell phone number out to the world in an errant Twitter message meant for uh, the CTO of the Oculus, which is the uh, Oculus the Prime virtual reality headset owned by Facebook. 
Oh, really? Right? So it's another company. Yeah. He's just sending him a, a note or something on Twitter. Like, Here's my phone number. Give me a call. And he mistakenly sent it out to- Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, what's the number here? His, he has 16.7 million followers uh, on Twitter. So Ugh. embarrassing. So instead, uh, CNBC- uh, what callers? So you call his number. He stopped picking up. CNBC, of course, they're all over the story. They call up, and what you actually get is a recorded message from a video game. The message says in the character's voice. I think he just recorded it off the game. Bye, it says, "Somehow you found your way here to me. I offer you my congratulations and my respect." And then it hangs up. That wow. sounded very robotic. That was very. No, that was just Terry reading oh. it. Did you think that was like a soundbite? That was just Terry. Yeah. That was, oh, okay. Sometimes Terry sounds a little robotic. A little robotic, yes. Just it's morning robotic, I think. You your voice totally changes by mid morning. Is that what it really? Mm-hmm. All right. It like drops. Yeah, somehow it gets deeper. Where yeah. everybody else's gets higher. Yeah. That might be the cold that I don't have. But what? Yeah. Soon. How come you don't have a cold, but I still have <laughs> remnants of a cold and Jeff is now faking a cold. Genetic superiority. Is that what we're going with? That's what I'm gonna say. Wow. My whole family's been mm. sick. I've had little kids coughing in my face. Yeah. Which, you know, they don't like, you know, maybe, respect boundaries. Maybe it's less genetic superiority. Maybe mm. it's more just the fact that you never are around any people. Well, that could be it too. If you isolate yourself from the population, yeah. it's eh. maybe it's social isolation. There's some benefit there. Don't you have to <laughs> don't you have to experience all those all the coughing and sneezing on you so that you can build up an immunity to it all? Yes. And maybe that was were you a sickly child? Um, not really, but once a year, once it seemed like through junior high, once a year, I had to take a week off because I was sick. Well, weren't you the kid that had the 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 medical bed in no. your front room, not and at you'd all. just look out the window? <laughs> nope. Oh, because oh. that would explain it. Yeah, it would be so nice to go play I with wish the I other could kids. Play. <laughs> They're sure playing out there, mom. You put no. your hand on the frozen glass of the window. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what I just realized yesterday? Instead of just saying "Woe is me, I have a cold," yeah, I just thought, you know, it's my turn. It's Everybody turn just what? has a turn to get a cold. Oh, wow. yeah. It's why my n- turn. You know what I like to ask? Not instead of why me, why not you? <laughs> why <laughs> why not, not what you can- <laughs> Why can't you have a cold once in a while? And don't even turn it into a, hey, I can't, I've got to work because I don't get paid for sick time. Don't say that. Just say, why not me? Why can't I take one of these viruses or germ infections for the team can you ask and shouldn't you ask yourself that very question no oh okay i already did i took one for the team monday didn't i actually you took one for yourself and stayed home (laughs) when did i when did i do that last week was it Mm. yeah have you noticed this week's going really slow yes why do you think that is i just have a lot going on so it feels like every second of my day is occupied. Hmm. I and feel the my, same way. And my sleep. In mm-hmm. the middle of my sleep, I wake up working, doing a radio show hmm. while I'm dreaming. At least you don't Man. have – see, I feel like I'm parenting – well, my wife feels like she's parenting all the time. Oh, yeah. And I feel like we've been so busy, we wake up in the middle of the night and we've got a child in our bed, like poking right up against our ribs. Yeah. So even in our sleep, we're but, parenting. Yeah, but you have young kids. I have the same problem, and I have like a 16-year-old in my bed. <laughs> you got to stop that when they're young because if not – Stop that behavior, yeah. They will show up. Hey, uh, President Trump um, 
not having a – how do we put this? Yeah. His polling isn't very high. Right. Wrong. He's at, what, 35? Yeah. So Wrong. A new CNN poll, but – It's fake news. That's fake news. <laughs> right. Um, it says he has earned an approval rating of just 35%. Mm. You're wrong. Only 35% of Americans um, are, are pleased with, with what he's doing necessarily. What's interesting is when Fox News does a similar poll, the numbers are about the same. So is that fake news? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's all fake news. It's interesting. Uh, until those polls numbers get up. But the, the scary thing is this is – they're the lowest – Numbers recorded in um, polling history, in the history of modern polls. Right. Says who? <laughs> um, for a, a president's first year. Hmm. George W. Bush, at this time in his first year, had an 86% approval rating. Well, that was around 9-11. Yeah. And I think people you were... You kind of have to toss that out. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So just throw that one out. Okay. He, he gave that speech at 9-11. People were like, well, let's do uh, this. Yeah. We're all united because we were attacked. Okay, so, so there's other That's factors. an anomaly yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. John Kennedy. Okay. 77%. Yeah. Wow. But it was Camelot, though. And he was a Kennedy, right. Right. He was and, a really good-looking guy. Yeah. 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 He just beat the Russians he with had the whole a whole missile standoff. He had back problems. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that had something to do with it. Right. Uh, His kids, the real cute kids, little kids running around. The yeah. lesser um, popular George Herbert Walker Bush. Yes. With Babs, Barbara, mm-hmm. uh, 71% at this stage. Oh, wow. Okay. Ike. Mm. Dwight Eisenhower, I 60. I like Ike. I want to be like Ike. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's a different one. That's that's a different. Song, yeah. That is a different. Um, Dwight Eisenhower, 69%. Oh, wow. Which, you know, but let's, okay, let's not talk about, the, the, those tend to be like, you know, the winners. Let's yeah. talk about some of the people that even President Trump has called losers. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Jimmy Carter. Okay. He Bill, was one term, embarrassment. Yeah, one yeah. time, one yeah. term. Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Richard Nixon, mm-hmm. all of those, air quote, loser people, uh, they finished their first calendar year with an approval rating mid to high 50s. Oh, wow. So, but you're not accounting for the liberal, deep state, media influenced, uh, yeah. you know, program that's been coordinated to just drive the numbers down to make him look bad. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So let's compare that to another liberal. Oh. So so uh, President Reagan, a conservative, right. had a similar push against him. That liberal yeah. front. Again, social media, it's a whole yeah. different media. aspect in this situation. He was an actor, though, too. And oh, yeah. Donald kind of is an actor. Do you think we're ever going to see numbers that high anymore? Or do you think we're too divided? Well, I think I think you will because uh, just one president ago it was fifty eight percent, fifty nine percent. Right, but not like seventies, eighties. Yeah, but you will if we again if we have another disaster or yeah. attack. In I think that's what it's going to take. Otherwise, I don't think we'll ever see numbers that high. Again. Reagan, by the way, his first year was at forty nine percent. So I don't know what President Trump might want to do is use it as feedback to to learn. That maybe he could change some things. No, this next year. I no. think it's a little too late. Well, it's, no, and, it's and better like, to go with the whole conspiracy route because yeah. then you can fight it. Because he got some legislation passed this last hour. One, yeah. and but if he would maybe change just a, a little bit of his rhetoric, mm. and maybe be more open to just other ideas, so he the, might get up to the forties. What is he? Seventy-seven. You're asking him to ch- at this yeah. point in his life to change his ways. Wait, he's 77 years old. I believe so. Really? 
You're asking him at this point in his life to well, change no, his ways. Just if he wants a higher rating. Oh. You know. Is he that old? He's in his 70s. I think he's 72. At that point, he's 71. Well, still, but it's all <laughs> relative. You know, oh, you everything think- falls apart, right? <laughs> you were thinking of the Disney animatronic of him. That looks like a 77-year-old. There you go. But, I mean, just that idea. you get With to, rigor mortis. You get to a certain point in your life, do you just wholesale change your personality? Well, no, you, again, you don't have to. You can be the curmudgeon at the senior center that, right. just, that everyone's mad at. I'm, I'm halfway there, so <laughs> we're good. You keep stealing their fruitcake. Um, or you can, if you want a higher rating, you just you kind of just open up. You learn. That's the neat thing about being a president or any human on this earth is we just learn. Doesn't mean you you can even keep a lot of your policies. Just find a, a kinder, gentler way of proposing those policies. <sighs> Maybe it's because he's cleaning out the swamp. When you clean out the swamp, your numbers go down. We'll see. Hey, straight ahead, we're going to be talking about shame. Does the American culture shame people too much? Should we just go back to the old days when we could just put them in the stocks? Just embarrass people for the decisions they make. We'll talk about it straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. friends to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, there's been a lot of studies about the use of shame in our homes, in society, and in politics, and a lot of of interesting discussions in the news today about shaming people and to what degree we shame accusers uh, or those that have been accused of certain crimes or certain things. Um, So today we we wanted to bring on a, a true blue expert that can help us understand a little bit more how we use shame in our culture. Um, and here to help us do that is Professor Peter Stearns. He's a professor of history at George Mason um, University and uh, is widely um, known on, in his research on uh, the emotions, the history of emotions, and including two popular textbooks that he's written as well. One is called Shame, A Brief History, Tolerance in World History, The Industrial Turn in World History, Doing Emotions in History, a lot of different books, and we're honored to have him here. Dr. Stearns, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Talk to us about this. When, when I was reading your article in the conversation, I'm thinking, holy cow, we've been doing this shame thing for a very, very long time, haven't we? Oh, absolutely. I mean, most societies historically have depended very heavily on shame. No question. And talk about, first, I guess, define it for us. How do we define shame versus guilt versus other things? Okay. Well, technically, the distinction between shame and guilt, which Actually, current psychologists emphasize very heavily. Right. Shame is when a person feels that a group is disapproving of him or her, presumably because of something they've done, but the disapproval is sort of sweeping. Guilt focuses on um, an action, and it doesn't depend quite as much on an audience. So you feel guilty because you've done this or that. You don't necessarily feel that you're a guilty person. So the distinction technically is between a, a very focused feeling of uh, wrongdoing and a more sweeping sense that the self is being condemned by a community or an imagined audience. Interesting. So part of shame 
um, it seems like is deeply attached and rooted to creating kind of pro-social behavior with people, making sure everybody, you know, they're socially safe. Yeah, I mean, shame, the, 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 the social purpose of shame is to uh, try to assure conformity to group norms by threatening a punishment of uh, widespread social disapproval. Talk about the history, uh, going back even to the stocks, and I guess I'm sure even before that. Um, how have we used shame over the years to create conformity? Well, the, the, the famous example is the one that you just uh, referred to, and is actually this that drew me to the project of looking at shame historically. I mean, the famous situation in New England, but it was common in Western Europe and many other societies. It's not just a Western phenomenon. Uh, the famous punishment was for somebody who had violated community standards uh, concerning sexual behavior or business practice. It's not all just about sex. And the person was put in the public stocks for a period of time where presumably the community would file past and jeer and, and, and shout and make the person feel even more uncomfortable. And then after a time, the person would be released, but the um, shame would linger at least for a time. Wow. So and, the, the, the famous historical shift, the one that, as I say, attracted me to the project, was at some point, obviously, societies like the United States decided that stocks were really inappropriate. Yeah, somewhere there was a legal case, right, where we're saying, okay, we're not going to publicly shame anybody. Right. At least we're not going to do it in such a gross fashion. That is correct. I guess we still do some version of that in, you know, the perp walk and the the police and the arrest and the hearings. I mean, it, it's still somewhat there. Sure, sure. Well, the, the, again, from my standpoint, the interesting thing about the project's history is in the United States and the West generally, shame was increasingly disapproved of from the late 18th century onward. Uh, the stocks were abolished beginning in Massachusetts in 1804. By 1912, all the states in the United States had abolished public stocks. So you have a period, really, of intense disapproval of shame from, again, around 1800 onward. But what's intriguing, and frankly what I had not realized or expected, is that over the past three, four decades, uh, shame has had something of a revival in the United States, which is what you're referring to. Yeah. Now, is it a positive revival, or is it? Are we just being more shameful? <laughs> I mean, what are? How are we approaching it now? Okay. First of all, it's genuinely mixed. Okay. Here, here, here's here's the mixture. First of all, there are lots of folks, including most psychologists who study shame, that continue to feel that shame is a really bad thing. It makes people feel much worse than they need to feel. It does not produce better behavior. Uh, we should try to stop shaming. And there's a therapist, for example, in Houston named Ber Ber uh, Brene Brown. Yeah, Brene Brown. Right, who, who tells you whenever you feel shamed, shout it to the rooftop, shame the shamers, because we've got to stop this. So this is factor number one. We still have lots of people who think shame is, is, is just wrong, um, an affront to, to uh, personal dignity. Hmm. Then there are folks who believe that a measure of shame is actually um, act quite important to society. So you have judges over the past three, four decades, judges in a number of, of local courts, probably particularly in the South and Southwest, but it's, it's national, who are, who are using public shaming. They're not reviving the stocks, 
but they're saying, look, if you've been convicted of drunk driving or some other offense like that, instead of going to jail, we're going to require you to put a sign on the back of your car or have you stand in a, in a shopping mall for a time saying, I am a shoplifter, I'm a convicted shoplifter, we're going to use shame to enforce community norms. Mm. So that's another factor. Then you have a group, and this is particularly clear on social media, you have a group that are just plain eager to be as nasty as possible. So social media shaming, which is actually part of the bullying phenomenon, is, um, is, a, is a very important outcropping of contemporary communications, and it can make people feel really bad. It can drive individuals to suicide. So you've got all these strands, people who, who disapprove of shaming, people who feel that shaming has a place in our uh, social and cultural system, people who are using shaming simply to be nasty, and then final component, we clearly have individuals in our society, and I won't name names, but they'll be pretty obvious, <laughs> who seem to be immune to shame. You can't shame them. Yeah. You just keep on doing what they're doing. It's like they're Teflon. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Nothing sticks. Right. So there's a, there's a famous quote from a lobbyist. He happens to be a, a German who says, shame is for, uh, shame is for sissies. You should, be, you should be able to rise above shame and go on doing what you're doing despite the fact the public disapproves. So we don't have an agreed-upon set of standards for shaming, which makes the situation, A, really interesting, and B, extraordinarily complicated. Yeah, and um, it's, it's so interesting, especially with like the sexual uh, har- harassment, the sexual ab- abuse scandals that are out there. Yep. We, so we, we end up getting enough shame out there by putting people on lists, but uh, maybe not enough shame to – to enact, uh, you know, any real change, possibly? I don't know. It's. I mean, this is, this is an interesting one, and you're quite right to bring it up. I mean, this is a use of shaming that is largely, it's not entirely nonpartisan, but it seems to be something that both right and left agree on, that, that um, uh, sexual harassment is inappropriate, um, and we're obviously going to pass some additional laws against it, but we're also going to rely heavily on shaming, which is sort of the... The old-fashioned approach where you try to get a definition of community standards and enforce them through shame. The little – the Esther Prynne, uh, Scarlet Letter shame. Right, right, right. right. Uh, I think this is actually potentially somewhat promising, not just because of the sexual behavior aspect, but because it has some potential to see Americans saying, look, we really do have some community standards – we actually can agree on them, despite the fact that some of us are Republicans and some of us are Democrats, and we're going to agree to enforce them through shaming. I think that's actually uh, potentially a step in the right direction. It does need one other component. What's that? Your, your reference to the Scarlet Letter is interesting. Societies that relied heavily on shaming in the past usually had some agreement that after a while you could be reintegrated back into the community. So the woman who got the scarlet letter in Nathaniel Hawthorne's famous novel, actually the community would have allowed her to take the letter off after a while. She decided not to. But the community said, look, you, you, you've, in essence, you've, you've served your time, you've been shamed, and now we'll let you back into the community. That's a very important addition that we haven't worked out yet in contemporary America. Well, and it's interesting because – um, a lot of this would be maybe, you know, you need a publicist. Nowadays, you need your lawyers. You need to have a press conference. You need to then do good for so long, and then we'll eventually allow you back in. 
but but because it's a social norm, we don't you can't you can't make normative uh, the reentry process of shame, can you? Well, you can again. Obviously, my point is we need to be discussing shame more widely as a society. Absolutely. We can figure out at least a little bit more clearly when you can get back in. There's actually a famous case of a law professor uh, who mistakenly sent pornography to the students in her class. And she was shamed up and down the line, but she basically decided, look, I've done something wrong. I'm I'm going to apologize for it, and I'm going to ride out the storm. And she did ride out the Hmm. storm for a while. People lost interest, and she was uh, she was able to to continue with her career without permanent damage. And, and we've right, yeah, we've seen that, right? Michael Vick. Um, yeah. I mean, we've. I guess you're saying he did prison time. So it's yeah, not- that's true. I, I guess I guess is that there's always the stigma, and I guess the stigma would be different than the shame of it. Well, yeah, the stigma. You're not going to get rid of the stigma necessarily, depending on. You know, the nature of your offense and how much society remembers, uh, the stigma problem is a real one in any society that relies on shame. So, yeah, I don't have any magic solution for that. But the stigma can fade with time if you, uh, you know, if you get your act together and, and demonstrate contrition and don't repeat the offense. Right. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Peter Stearns, who is a professor of history at George Mason University, and he's walking us through a a book uh, he's written and some of his writings on shame. The name of the book is Shame, A Brief History. Um, Dr. Stearns, I guess, so the the funny thing is we, we almost are in this duality state where we're hearing from Brene and other psychologists that um, shame is bad. It's kind of has no real redeeming value to a person. Um, it might, I guess, there, there might be some version of why we need it publicly, but but it's impacting negatively the human soul. Um, yet at the same time, I think each and every one of us uh, deep down use it, don't we? We it's just a tool we use. Whether it's sure, with our kids, whether it's with our, you know, the people that have done the wrong, whatever. Yeah, and a, an, an easy example of that, and, and one that, that I find fascinating, we have gotten rid of some of the worst shaming mechanisms in our schools. For example, we no longer put the dunce cap on us. Right. Who's, uh, that seems to have ended around 1920 in the United States. Hmm. But we still shame in the schools. There are schools that give kids a green, red, or orange label for their daily behavior. Um, and this is public. The parents know it. The kids know it. And this is, you know, it's not as gross as a dunce cap, but it's still shaming. So the point is, and you were sort of making it yourself, it looks like it's really hard to get rid of shame in a society. Uh, we all have shaming impulses. So maybe the thing to do is not talk about how awful shaming is, but talk about how we can run it more appropriately, more equitably, to be productive rather than simply um, nasty. Mm. Do you see? And let's we'll get into how we can do it better, maybe healthier. Um, do you see that certain cultures are more likely to shame? Is the Puritan kind of uh, Christian? I mean, there's kind of these Christian Judeo Christian ethic. Uh, communities, are they more likely to be shaming communities versus others? Okay, well, look, I mean, this is a, this is a great question, uh, and let me, let me answer it in two parts. The obvious answer to your, to your question is um, 
There are a number of major cultures in the world today, both some small ones in the Pacific Islands, but also huge cultures like East Asian culture, Japan, China, that use shame much more openly and widely than we do. Hmm. Um, it has some pluses and it has some minuses. So we can study these societies. They're modern like we are, but they're, they're different with regard to shame. We can study them to see how shame works, how in some ways it works better, but has some undesirable consequences. The other response to your question is, no, there's really no evidence that the Judeo-Christian ethic pushes shame any more than other ethics do. Indeed, there once was an argument that the Judeo-Christian ethic uh, emphasized guilt at the expense of shame, and that turns out historically not to be true. Huh. Yeah, because there's always the joke of the Jewish or Catholic or even Mormon mother and the pressure they can, you know, gen or the father even, and the pressure that that can generate on on people and the yeah. shame that might drive. But not so, not proven true. So sometimes that's guilt rather than shame. So right, right. Because it, it gets messed up. I yeah, because we're not so guilt would say we're just when we're doing something that's against. That when we're actually acting on something that's against our value system, you might be more inclined to feel guilt. That is correct. But when you feel like you're no good, that you're bad as a human being, that would be more shame. I mean, yeah, maybe bad as a human being, but I would emphasize more. When you feel that what you're doing has been disapproved of by a community that you feel is important to you, that's when you feel shame either instead of guilt or along with guilt. Mm. Yeah. What can we do then, uh, Peter, as parents um, to – because I can influence my family. I can you know, influence how we use shame a little bit more. What, what can we be doing to teach a healthier way to, to understand it and to, to make it be healthier? Okay. So, again, I don't want to set myself up as some sort of guru on this. But, right. Um, point one is – and this is, this is clearly true with social media – We've got to help teach our kids that there are some uses of shaming that are cruel and inappropriate, and this goes along with the, with the campaign against bullying. Um, shame can be really, really destructive. There's no doubt about that, um, and we need to teach kids to stay away from that, um, and I suppose we need to teach them a little bit about how to handle it if you're the target. Mm, yeah. One, teach about some of the destructive and unfair implications of shaming. But point two would be, I think we probably need to talk to kids and illustrate this with, with actual situations in which they get used to a certain amount of uh, moderate shame as a, as a consequence for actions that are disapproved of, so they understand that this is, a, this is an emotion that they want to avoid. I mean, the real point of shame is not so much the act of shaming, but the understanding that you don't want to be subject to shame. So avoiding shame is something that is obviously potentially important for promoting good behavior. And I um, guess that that's really powerful. I mean, because there are certain things that are pro-social, they're healthier for society. Yep. Um, but then, then there's – I can just hear in the back of my head somebody saying, oh, well, forever there were things that were pro-social supposedly but were anti-human. Like uh, slavery, society may have believed in it, but some didn't, and those that fought against it would have been shamed. So, how do you, is there a way to balance the oh, individual oh. and the and the whole, the group? Right. Well, this is where 
obviously, and, and, and you've touched on it before. This is where you're not really so much talking about shame per se. You're talking about healthy conversations about social norms. So we've certainly decided as a society with virtually unanimous agreement now, yeah. a couple of holdouts, that sh- slavery is shameful. A society that practices slavery, individuals that practice slavery should be shamed. We agree on that. We seem now to be beginning to agree that certain forms of uh, sexual harassment in the, worst, in the workplace are shameful. Right. Now, we've got a divided society, and there are things that we're not going to agree on. But I think it would be constructive to have informal conversations about, okay, uh, what are some areas where, despite all our current disputes, we actually seem to agree yeah. that behaviors are wrong and that a certain amount of shaming is an appropriate response. And again, this sexual harassment assault situation, um, even though it has distressing and, and, and uh, disjointed implications for the moment, uh, this conversation is actually potentially fruitful. Maybe we could extend some of the categories a little bit more widely than we imagine. Yeah. We've even talked to people on the show about calling it uh, just calling it harassment versus abuse versus making it criminality of it. I mean, every one of those conversations takes it to a different level um, versus boys will be boys, men will be men kind of things. Uh, but I, I think you're you're hitting on the point that, that we've got to have these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the further extension there is my guess is that we probably don't want to make some of these actions outright illegal because they're gray areas, they're hard to pin down, but we can make them shameful. Mm-hmm. We tend to, to feel as a society that, you know, if, if, if something is wrong, we should be able to pass a law about it. Well, sometimes you have to, but there may be other cases in which we can rely on social pressure, i.e. shaming, uh, to do the job without some of the, um, without some of the uh, disadvantages of outright legal prohibitions. Yeah. Well, and it even you can even see in some of the conversations they're they're difficult to have because even offering an alternate opinion um, becomes shameful. Right. No, not, we we have, and there you get into the dilemma currently. Quite apart from the fact that we're not as familiar with shame as we should be, um, we've got both left and right vigorously eager to shame the other side. Yeah. And we're not gonna we're gonna, we're not going to resolve that fully anytime soon, but. Uh, my, I think a, a greater awareness that we're using shame. I mean, we've got people, particularly, frankly, on the left, who disapprove of shame in principle. They've got the modern message here. But they're trying as hard as they can to shame people on the other side of the divide. So a, a greater recognition that we're using shame and a greater recognition of how we can use it constructively might cut across the partisan divide a little bit. Yeah. No, beautiful insights, I think. Peter, thank you so much. Dr. Peter Stearns um, and his great work as a history professor at George Mason University, helping us better understand shame and how, how we use it in our American culture. Boy, it has a, it has a very deep history, doesn't it? And, and it's so personal, but it is so integrated into all the conversations we have in our lives and in trying to improve and create improvement. Awesome stuff, folks. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. We'll do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball, friends. You know, it's interesting. Shame, uh, and we do. We hear from psychologists how bad it is to the on the personal level. We hear from really kind of more of the social psychologists that shame is just a way that we create some order in our system. So how do you handle it? What do you do with it? When somebody has offended you, I guess that's my my bit of advice. Be careful what you say. Be careful how you say it. Uh, be careful how public you go with information because um, shame, it, it may, it's hard. You're not going to ever get people – there's some people that won't operate because they're ashamed. They don't even operate when they feel guilt. They're not going to change. They're not going to adapt. There's others, however – that uh, might feel shame too keenly, maybe more than they need to feel it. So everybody is going to handle it differently and be affected by it differently. So wield it carefully. (laughs) Just know you have the power to influence people and to make people feel bad and ashamed for something that maybe they shouldn't or that maybe they don't even understand themselves. So if we could be a little bit more patient with each other, possibly, and also communicate, I think, to a higher level, and let's allow conversations, especially now as we're talking about sexual harassment and the hashtag MeToo movement, maybe we really need to be open to allow everybody's opinion into these conversations. It doesn't mean that their opinion is right, but if we shame people for having opinions, then we're doing the exact same thing we've been doing by sexually harassing people and then shaming their voice um, over the many years. So we must be careful, my friends. Uh, but uh, we'll continue learning and educating and, and getting the best thinkers on the subject to see if we can't uh, improve our world. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. Welcome back, friends. Uh, so many different issues when it comes to shame and shaming. Schools, by the way, have been using it. Do you, did you ever remember the day when they'd put your grades on the wall? Oh, yeah. And your name would be right next to your grade? Well, now that's even being seen as a shaming act, so you can't post grades without you know some when i was a senior way your of, student number yeah. and then your grade so that's how they, they shifted it back I, mean, I remember having your name and your grade next to it but everybody could wall. see because you'd run your finger down looking for the number and you'd stop at your number ah. and everyone knew it was yours my kindergarten teacher would put our initials on the board when we got in trouble she would also take our shoes and put them in the quote parking lot just a section of the room that it was a major shaming experience <laughs> well, did your shoes smell no yeah. We just got in trouble, and for her, in her mind, that Take was a good shoes. way to teach You're, you a lesson. We're going to see your toes. In my little boys' class, they put names on the board for being good oh, instead of being bad see, when I was in school. The, that's right? the anti-shaming. That's the pro. That's positive psychology. East, Hap- East Hampton High School in Massachusetts, they're asking students, uh, they're being asked to no longer use the word freshman. What? The school is asking students to use the term first-year student. Oh, boy. East Hampton High School freshmen are now being referred to as first-year students as the school aims to be more inclusive. 
So sophomores and being sophomoric. There's also some uh, second year some students. gender aspects to it because it's fresh men. Yeah, and are they fresh? And they're women, so is it really right to refer to women mm. as fresh men? My man is wilted. Changing the way we use pronouns has been a challenge for me, says uh, this, this student. I, wanna, I want people to feel comfortable, and if that means we have to change the way I use my language, I'm okay with that. They're just going to call them first years. Sounds like it's from Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah, it just that the first years becomes the term that people use to, you know, call you names. Whatever first year. Yeah. Yeah. See, it doesn't, does it really matter what they call you because you're still going to be harassed and hazed? Right. It's called being a first year. That was my thought. I'm like, this seems pointless to me. Oh, well. I guess this is this is where the people are like, see, it's just everybody's just trying to protect everybody now. What about yeah. the good old days when we could just tape somebody to a pole? Yeah, come on. <laughs> oh, I miss those days. Oh, well, I guess we're evolving or growing up, getting somewhat better. Anyway, that's why we're here, to be on the side and uh, walk us all through it so we can all learn together. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang's all here. (laughs) You're waiting for me to start singing with you. I just love it. It's uh, it's wetness day before Christmas. Really, I have one more day of work, not to brag, but I also have 100 things that I have yet to purchase. Would you settle a dispute for me? No. It's a very uh, frivolous, it it doesn't even really matter, but I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my wife and I disagree on how many days are left until Christmas. I've always thought if you're not counting the current day, you should count the day on which the event occurs. So, for instance, <laughs> I would count Thursday, and I'm yeah. putting up my fingers, yeah, yeah. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, five counting days. Christmas, yeah. five days till Christmas. Yeah. Let me, you know how she, I do it? So she doesn't count does the current do day or the day on which the event occurs. So in her opinion, it would be Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Four days okay. until Christmas. Yes. L- let me let me just let me just. What you agree you. with her? No, no, no. The, I, oh, I, okay. I, I, this debate was kind of raging because we went to a family party and someone had one of those countdown oh, yeah. little block things yeah, you can we've flip got the date. And I was and the woman next to me, I think my wife's grandma, I'm not sure it was, but she says, "Is it like nine days till Christmas?" And I'm like, uh, "I'm not sure. It depends on how you count." And <laughs> yes. then, so here's the here's the debate, which depends is it? on how you count. Well, okay. Then there's the old school way. Where you say today is the twentieth, yes, and Christmas is on the twenty fifth. Hmm. Therefore, it's five days away. It's just simple math. Hallelujah. Yes. Don't, don't you think? Don't, don't say it's just simple math. But I don't it, want her. I don't want her to feel bad. And she's the accountant. No, she's a she's so. an incredible accountant. <laughs> but it just seems like if you're if you're saying it's just a subtraction issue, you just subtract the current date. From the 25th. Boom. So do you count the day you're on? Well, you're, yeah, you're going to subtract. You have to, it's, 
You only count the day you're on if you're not counting the day on which the event occurs. In my opinion. Hmm. I think it's easier to say. Because at some point, you're double, double, it feels like you're double counting something. Well, what, mm-mm, well mm-mm. yeah. You're, you're, giving, you're giving credibility to an entire day when it may only be a tenth of a day left or a, a 24th of a day left. That's true, but that's a kind of a different conversation. Yeah. Well, this conversation, many would say, is quite different. <laughs> so, but different is good. It's different in a good way, Matt. Uh, lots to cover today. You may not even have known it, but last night, uh, fairly late at night, you became uh, probably you became richer. You're wealthier. You woke up with a nice big tax refund in your pocket, and you may not even have known it. Eighty percent apparently will be really? getting a tax. Rebate. Now, that, so how many more kids do I have to have in order to get yeah. that rebate? You always think that your taxes and are somehow connected to your children, <laughs> but um, you can't think of kids that way because you have to raise them too. And so, so in eight they, years, this, these laws could change, and then all of a sudden, you can be penalized. Little for tax kids. shelters, you can't no. look. Okay. So, do they need to now start paying taxes themselves? Oh yeah. wow! Like, you, do I need if, to raid the piggy bank? And if you could get them to do that, earn your keep. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, they did it. They passed. Uh, they passed the bill, the tax bill. Now they actually have to repass it because of a technicality. Well, but, the rules they're trying to pass this under, so they don't need you know, ten votes from Democrats to agree. So right, that's really what this is. And it depends who you listen to. I guess Democrats, liberals, and um, and the, what's it called? Just kind of the non. The GA troublemakers, the Green parties, the Green parties. They're all going to say that the only people that won here were corporations, right? The rich, the wealthy, but the losers are that, the some poor. Some of that comes from because the tax cuts for business are permanent, for individuals temporary, right? Yeah. So if you're fighting for the little man, like you ran on, why is it temporary for the little man, and for the big corporation, is it permanent? That yeah, you know, that's the yeah. argument. Yeah. It, well, part of it is because the. They they couldn't do it by by a simple majority, right? Right. So that was just more how the Senate works. You know what, though? People don't understand their taxes anyway, even no. before the tax reform. Right. I mean, people see that, oh, I got this huge tax return. They think it's a good thing, when in actuality it means that you overpaid or that the government yeah. took more than they needed. You gave the so, government more money. Yeah. So in the end, what's going to prove this to be good or a bad policy is if the economy continues to grow. Right. That's it. The, the Republicans are basing this all off of this idea that they feel like it's going to grow at 3% yeah. and just continue to grow and be a robust economic engine and all these jobs and businesses will grow and everything will be great. And the Democrats are saying, you have no proof that's going to happen. And so you're basing the future of our economic, the country, the economic future of our country on this wish that we're going to continue to grow. Right. So whatever proves true will be the history of this bill. And will probably be the determining factor of if there's a Trump season two. Yeah. Because you'll probably start seeing how this rolls out over the next yeah. You know, months. you know what else? Because this is supposed to simplify the tax code. The one thing I haven't heard much about, which makes me really question mm. if it's going to simplify anything, you would think that a bunch of tax accountants would be really depressed. Okay, but really? I don't. Well, because they're they're all going to be out of business, right? That was the idea. Everything's on a postcard. They, they kept it's going, so simple. We're going to put all those accountants out of business. You know, but we're I'm not ruining hearing, the jobs. I'm not no. hearing a lot of sad accountants today. People don't want to do their taxes, even so, though even if it's on a postcard, which it isn't. They don't want to do that. Even they'll if it's on in. four postcards. Yeah, they'll have someone else. Do. Isn't that weird? So, hmm, if you're an accountant, sorry, you're probably going to need a job running a robot. 
Because uh, I don't think so. I think there are enough people out there that would much rather hand this type of thing over to somebody else. Well, especially because that's what we're accustomed to now. But and now corporations, gonna... corporations are always going to need accountants. Tell me about it. And one of, the, one of the biggest lobbyists when it comes to tax policy mm-hmm. are the people who prepare taxes. Yes. H&R Block. All those kind of companies that you hear around tax time, they start advertising yeah. the people out on the side oh, of the street yeah. with the spinning Statue signs. Statue of Liberty yeah, spinning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All those guys, they're huge lobbyists trying to keep their business. So, look, no, no, we got to keep this complicated so people will come to us. You know, that's their, their approach that way. Boy. They deny it, but I mean, come on. It's like a bad multi-level marketing company. Eh, do, you have to, do you have to put a stamp on the postcard? Just if you want it to count. Mm, yeah, I, I think people would rather just hand it over to somebody else because then you got to go get stamps. Yeah, unless you're at Costco, you're never going to remember to get stamps. I I don't even remember to get them there. Well, at Costco, they do always they, end it by they end the no. transaction by saying, "Do you need any ice or stamps?" Ice or stamps? That's the sign do of a really? good grocery store. That's where have where, I been? where I go, that's what they ask too. Wow, ice or stamps? Nope, I'm all right. Thanks. Paper by the way, or plastic. That's what they ask me. Twenty pounds of ice. A buck sixty. Yeah, you're Water. never going to find that anywhere else. Water's that is cheap. That is some good ice. That's a good deal on ice. Uh, we'll give you other good deals coming up soon. But first to the headlines with Terry South. What else, Terry? An employee training to be a conductor was in the locomotive of the Amtrak train that derailed Monday morning near Seattle. And investigators are looking into whether having this person on board distracted the engineer and caused him to lose situational awareness, a federal official told the Associated Press. Ah. The locomotive's event uh, recorder showed the train was going 80 miles per hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone when it ran off the rails. The National Transportation Safety Board told the AP. It appears the emergency brake went off automatically and was not manually activated by the unidentified engineer. It's too early to know why the train was going so fast and the engineer and other crew members will uh, have not been interviewed yet because they're all uh, haven't been medically cleared. They're all in the hospital because they were oh, in the yeah. main engine that crashed onto the freeway. The train was on the inaugural run of the high-speed route between Seattle and Portland. The other, oh. we talked about the um, positive braking system right. whatever this did yeah. this computerized braking system was not even installed on the track that's supposed to be there but it wasn't but there's some laws that have kind of kept getting pushed back and pushed back like here's oh, the deadline now ah, let's boy. give you another year to install that and, and they haven't been installed yet oh, so yesterday boy. the stories were out saying that the uh, it wasn't activated it's not even on the track so yeah, more more. Well, and all the towns are worried because this these trains are flying through anyway, right. and this, this oh boy, it's a big deal down there. So we'll see where this goes. And you got um, some guy on the train that is being trained, like, hey, what's this for? Yeah, hey, what's this? So they're, what, they're, what's this button? We're do. going fast. They're concerned. Were they talking and not paying attention? Were they oh, fiddling with their brother. phones? What were they doing? And they have a camera that was in the control area of the the engine uh-huh. but no word on what that was actually they said it was damaged mm. they sent it back to dc to get fixed so we'll see what that comes seems out seems like there should have been some sort of external feed though or yeah. another copy of it uh, we'll see the key moment of the republican party rush to pass the sweeping tax bill was when the republicans abandoned revenue neutrality and senator pat toomey and bob corker of tennessee agreed in september <laughs> that the package would add up to $1.5 trillion to the federal deficit. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told Bloomberg on Monday, he said that was the key moment that allowed taxes to happen. Really? And the vote to happen, and by Christmas they're going to have their tax bill. 
Um, this says, without that, there would have been no tax bill. Republicans have maintained that the deep tax cuts for business would juice the economy enough that the tax bill would pay for itself. But no economic anal- an analyst has borne that out. The uh, Congressional Budget Office reports or project or projects that the GOP tax bill will add $1.46 trillion, just under that $1.5 trillion limit they set for themselves, to the federal deficit over 10 years, while the official tax analysis at uh, Congress's nonpartisan joint committee on taxation said it would add a trillion if you're accounting for economic growth. Oh, yeah. Right? Well, so it just depends how, you, how you're yeah. accounting. The right-leaning tax foundation estimated Monday that the tax bill would increase the deficit by $448 billion, also favoring economic growth. Okay, yeah. Meanwhile, the tax analyst at the Wharton School of Business... Hold on, hold on. That's where Mr. Trump went. Yes, he wants to let everyone know that he got his bachelor's from the Wharton School of Business. The Ivy League Wharton School of Business. Very smart people go there when he got his degree in economics. They project the bill will add $1.9 trillion to $2.2 trillion in debt over the next decade, which is way over the limit. Let's not believe that. I mean... Well, why not? That's his school. Yeah. He went there. He's a smart guy. He's really smart. Probably this. I think he's the smartest president we've ever had. According that's to, the silliest thing I've ever heard. That's what he said. So yeah, all those numbers. And again, we'll have to see. Yeah. Uh, Facebook announced Tuesday it was expanding its facial recognition technology in the interest of user privacy. The tool will now be able to notify users when a picture of them is uploaded, regardless of whether or not they are tagged in it, based on whether the algorithm recognizes the user's face. Oh, wow. So what, mm. if, what if you don't have one of those faces? Like, my wife has a face that everyone recognizes. No. Some people have a face that it's you, they look different every time you see yeah. them and in every picture, yeah. too. Facebook's head of privacy, Rob Sherman, says if someone posts a photo of you, you might not know about it. Now the user can access the photo and they can communicate to the person who posted it. Previously, Facebook would not flag the image for the untagged user, and any such photo would just float along until the user in question stumbled upon themselves, at which point they would be asked if they'd like to be tagged or not. Wow. Should you receive a notification that your visage yes. was uploaded to another user's photo, you can either uh, then tag yourself in the photo, leave it as is, or report the image. Additionally, Facebook will now give users the option to turn off facial recognition technology because it's creepy. It doesn't say that, but that's basically what it is. <laughs> I like the idea. Yeah, we'll Don't see. you think, like, to be able to know when somebody's uploading a picture, then you can go to them and say, please take that down. Yeah. That is my bad side. That's really what it comes down to. You got my bad side. You can petition to have it taken down. Interesting. Whereas now, I don't, and you have to find it yourself mm-hmm. instead of it helping you find it. So yeah. I have a lot of, I get tagged in a lot of photos that, but I never, ever go looking for those tags, ever. Now, I don't want now, to see now you'll be notified now every time. Now I'll get all these, oh, geez. Yeah. Maybe I don't want that. Now, you're a popular guy. You're always taking selfies. Yeah. Uh, and finally, the great, cha- the greatest chance for a white Christmas will be across the Midwest, Great Lakes, northern New England, and the Rockies, according to AccuWeather. A winter storm is forecast to bring snow from the Rockies and the Plains to the Midwest and northern Great Lakes on Wednesday through Friday. Uh, Cities such as Denver and Minneapolis should see several inches of snow, which will stick around for Christmas because of a cold blast that is forecast to follow the snow. No one's calling this the Arctic, uh, 
what do they call it? The Arctic Blast? The Arctic Vortex. That's what it was. Yeah. No one's using that term anymore, but I think it's the Arctic Vortex. Vortex is is a word that's not used quite enough. No. It's a, it's a good word. It says, yet another storm could form and spread a wintry mix of snow and ice on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day as far south as Texas and Oklahoma oh, to the boy. Great Lakes and interior northeast. And yes, even Hawaii is getting uh, some on Christmas Day. The Snow high, the highest, ice? The highest peaks of the two volcanoes on the Big Island will see up to two feet of snow this week, some of which could stick around for Christmas. That is... So you've got to take a hike if you want you gotta, snow in Hawaii. You've got to get way up there to get it. But. Yeah. Then you, can, then you could actually sled down into the volcano. Usually you right. can ride your bikes down into it. Right. Or up to it, then down to it. Now you can... Sled. So possibility of snow if you live in portions of the country. This is exciting. I may – don't tell my kids. But okay. I, I real, we may be going skiing. So you guys may see me in a, you know, in a, a wheelchair a and a boot. Yeah. Okay, cool. Great. Well, we it, can lower the microphone. You can roll right yeah, in here. that's yeah. great. It's funny that you felt confident saying that on the radio, which right. goes to show that you are not confident that they – Listen oh. to the show at all. Oh, no, I'm confident they don't. <laughs> they. Why would you listen to your dad for three right hours? Right now, they listen to me at night. They're not going to invest the time to listen to me in the morning. Plus, they're all asleep right now. Mm. I, I have teenagers. Yeah. So they probably won't be up for another, I don't know, five hours. Don't they have school? No. School's out? School's out. Oh, well. My kid's not out till tomorrow. <sighs> really? Yeah, he goes tomorrow, and then he's done. Tomorrow's pajama day at school. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. They're gonna today watch, here at work. They're going to watch Polar Express, and everyone's in their pajamas. That's how elementary it is Oh, tomorrow. that is great. Total waste of a day. We used to watch the Apple Dumpling Gang, yep. right? You remember? Right the reel-to-reel. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And then it would stop halfway yeah. through, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Do you remember, Jeff, you used to go, you used to have uh, pajama day. Remember that? When, then, then, I think I kind of had pajama week. Yeah, but that was just more because... You liked your pajamas a lot. That and school standards have dropped sufficiently. So. I'm pretty sure that I saw a memo that that was acceptable, but then I, I no. guess nobody else got that memo. Yeah. I still don't find it acceptable. Well, mm. I'll see people shopping on Saturday. I'm like, get dressed. Yeah. You had the effort to get out of bed. Just put some different clothes on. Hey, at least they're out. Yeah, at least. Hey, look at it that way. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess. Oh, they're out. They're out in their pajamas. Or yeah. they're underoos. Do you remember underoos? Mm. Were you guys around for those? Yeah, I was, yeah. Came in the like the 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 cardboard envelope, and yeah. you'd open it up, and you have your T-shirt and drawers, and, uh-huh. and you'd be you Superman. could be Batman, Superman, right? Wow, those are the days. Speaking of people's looks, yeah. Apparently, <laughs> hold on, is that what we were speaking? We're about? talking about pictures <laughs> huh? and people's looks, yeah. And apparently, uh, there were some drivers that were taking pictures of a police car because they thought that teenagers were driving the police car. What? So clearly that would no. that would make people concerned, yeah. right? What's what's so going on there? The police said we received a call from a concerned citizen who saw who they believed to be teenagers operating a marked patrol vehicle. It was quickly determined that the driver of the patrol vehicle was Officer Rock, accompanied by a prisoner she was transporting. While she may appear to be 14 years of age, we promise she is above the age of 21, the legal age to be a police officer as defined by the state of Missouri statute. So there, there's a there's an officer named Officer Rock that appears to be what? A 12, 14-year-old 14, yeah. girl 
So people are seeing this, taking pictures because they're concerned that what is that teenager doing driving this police car? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that would be hard. I, I always looked really young as a speaker. And so people would have to – the salespeople at my company would ask, are you OK with how young he is? He's, he's young. R- sure. Ruggedly good looking but young. And they would be like, yeah, we're, we're OK with that. Hmm. We'll try that. But to yeah. be a cop, that'd be hard. Hey, put the gun down. They, they sounds like a little cartoon character. So uh, McKenna Baus is coming up here yeah. at, at the end of the hour, right? Baus in the house. And I think you knew this, but we're losing her. I She's know. graduating. Leanna we're losing Tan. Leanna Tan. And we're losing these students and contributors left and right that I think it's about time we have another pilot season where we search out new potential contributors. Okay. And I thought this would be a good one. It's very timely. We're talking about tax reform. This is going to go through. All right. And there is a very unique genre piece okay. that, uh, that we might want to consider. For the show. So these would be segments on the yes. show. So it has to do with uh, a lot of people's favorite genre, westerns. Okay, yeah. Who doesn't love westerns? Uh, mixed with the exciting world of accountancy. Oh. So, so it's a western accountant show. Kind of called gun, like Gunsmoke almost. Simply The Taxman. There's an old saying that goes, cheat death, and sooner or later, death will come looking for you. But in the town of deduction, there was a different saying, cheat on your taxes, and sooner or later, the tax man will come looking for you. You see, the town of deduction was full of all types of scoundrels, the type of men that would deduct a personal lunch expense and not think twice about it. Yes, sir. The town was ripe with illegal and downright unethical behavior. And it looked like things would stay that way forever. Until the day the tax man rode into town. Our ability to learn is one of the most important skills we can develop in life. We are constantly learning, and our success is often dependent on how well we are able to actually do it. And many of us don't ever think about how we learn, do we? I mean, do you know your best method of learning for you? Do you know what the research says about, uh, you know, what traditional things like turn the television off? I mean, are are there certain things that we've learned that aren't necessarily true and legitimate uh, about how we learn? Well, um, here to speak with us today is Ulrich uh, Bozer, who is 
um, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and he writes and researches on education issues. He has articles appearing in all the major publications and uh, is talking to us today about a new book, Learn Better is the name of it. And um, it's all about helping us blow up some of the myths about learning and better understand uh, how you yourself can learn. Ulrich, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. To me, I mean, this is what I think is sad about uh, life. I, a lot of the ways that they would teach in school and traditional learning never worked for me, and I always felt like I was a little off until later in life when I started to figure out that I needed to find my way of doing it, the way that it works best for me. And over time, I've found I love learning, and I'm actually really good at picking up information and, and assimilating it. But um, I, I never understood how to learn as a younger person. So talk about um, how you got into this concept of wanting to learn, teaching to learn, and, and what drove you to want to, to write this book. Well, I've been working on this book on and off for many years. It's a topic that's long fascinated me even since I was a, a young kid, largely because I struggled to learn. I repeated kindergarten. I spent some time in special education. And what's interesting to me about this issue is that what's clear is is that a lot of the conventional wisdom on learning is, is simply wrong. You see people often using highlighters, even though there's very little evidence for them. You see people uh, underlining, even though there's very little evidence for that. And uh, even something like learning styles is a, is a common uh, belief, but it's, it really turns out to be a myth. And at the same time, there are practices like uh, talking to yourself that are very effective, but frankly, people don't use them because they seem a little bit weird. <laughs> it's true. Then all of a sudden, oh, you're the kid that talks to yourself and you can't learn. <laughs> so so that's funny. So some of these myths, um, like I use highlighters. I actually use them just to to notice. I don't use them to retain anything, but I use them to help me find the information when I need to use it. But But you're saying some of those techniques that we thought were helping us, they're not really helping us. Yeah, I mean, t- highlighters can be useful in some areas. Uh, the research behind them is is weak. The bigger issue here is that whether we use highlighters or underlining, we often engage in these kind of passive forms of learning. And, and to a degree, we're all familiar with this experience. Maybe you've read a newspaper article and you you know get to the bottom or like, what exactly was uh, this all uh, about? Um, and there are ways that we can push ourselves to learn in more effective ways. You know, something that I think many people have come to on their own is, is just teaching someone else, right? It really forces you to kind of ask yourself, do I really know this? Try to explain the material, simplify it in a way that someone else would understand. Um, you know, and that turns out to be a very effective way to learn. It's uh, far more active, far more engaging, and requires really... To, to make meaning as opposed to thinking of our brains like computer. You know, that there's just some data, and if we just pour it into our skulls, we'll, uh, we'll know it. That's true. And when you, because you've been researching um, learning uh, at the Center for American Progress, um, are our schools set up to just keep perpetuating some of these myths about learning, or are they actually bringing these new methods in and saying, we really need to do a lot more of, you know, see one, do one, teach one, instead of maybe just getting everyone to regurgitate the learning from last week? I think we've seen some signs of success 
uh, one learning skill that's very helpful is to think about your thinking, uh, something that researchers call metacognition. But, you know, asking yourself, you know, do I know this? You know, so often when it comes to learning, we're overconfident. You know, we think we know a lot more than we do. Uh, my favorite example is, is a toilet bowl. I'll ask most people, you know, do you know how a toilet bowl works? Some be like, sure. And then you start asking questions like, you know, why does the toilet, why is the toilet bowl able to flush when the water uh, in the house is turned off? Or why does a little water just sort of sit in the bowl, but you pour in the whole, uh, you know, bucket and suddenly it, it flushes. You, you, so we're overconfident. This idea of metacognition, thinking about thinking, has uh, gone into a lot of colleges, a lot of schools. But then when you look at something like uh, lectures, you know, this idea where uh, students, you know, just sort of sit there for an hour or two and, and supposed to retain all that information, you still see that being quite common. And, you know, there's a, there's a place for lecturing, but it's far more effective if we use some way that students are involved, even something like clickers, where students hold a, a little bit of technology and answer some true or false questions so to make sure that they're engaged. The third thing I'd, I'd say is that, you know, we need to teach learning to learn as an explicit skill. I mean, this is such an important thing for life, uh, whatever career you're in, uh, whatever, you know, field you're working in, you're, you're going to need to acquire new skills and, and how to acquire those skills in an effective way is, is very important. And how confidence building that must be, right? To to know that you, no matter what, you're really good at learning to learn and you know how to learn. So whatever situation you go into, you know, give me a month or two and I'll be up to speed. Exactly. And to some degree, it's also just an expectation. The people who uh, are willing learners know that learning is hard, that that struggle is difficult. And in fact, they know that that struggle is actually a sign that people are learning more effectively. Often we think that skills should come easily, but there's a lot of evidence now in the psychological research that learning is supposed to be hard. And uh, researchers like Bob York have coined this term desirable difficulties. In other words, the more difficult it, it is, the more that you're learning. Interesting. And so um, if we're making it too easy to, to gather the data, to gather the information, um, they may not be learning. The, the learning may be in, impacted. Yeah. And, you know, we think we're not supposed to make errors. We think that if we're struggling, we're not supposed to, to – uh, the, the material doesn't come easy to us. We think of ourselves, oh, we're not a, a math person or not a, uh, you know, a, you know – literature person, but um, mistakes, struggles, so important for, for learning. My favorite example, and this occurred to me as I was talking to a researcher in Florida. I was in his office and he asked me, what is the capital of Australia? And I'll be honest, that I thought that I knew the answer. And so I started giving, uh, you know, I guessed Sydney and he told me I was wrong. And I guess Melbourne, he told me that I was wrong. I started rattling off <laughs> cities and uh, Australia, you know, Perth, Adelaide that I'd ever heard of. And then he told me the, the answer, which is Canberra. And I was like, huh. wow, that's incredible. I'd, I'd never even heard of Canberra. Um, and researchers call this the hypercorrection uh, effect. So if, if you think that you know something, if you think that you knew the capital of Australia, and then you find out that you're wrong and you 
discover oak canbera, you actually have learned far more effectively. You're much more likely to uh, know that information in the future, and you're much more likely to sit and think for a second and say, why did I not know that? You know, what what does it say about geography, about history, that, um, you know, this, this smaller city uh, became the, the capital? And I think it's a helpful way to think about learning that mistakes, struggle are actually really good for us. They encourage us to think uh, in deeper ways, in richer ways. And honestly, we're often so inclined towards, you know, easiness in, in learning, because if it's easy, we can pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, we're really good. When that, um, those moments where you're like, uh, you yeah, know, I can't do this. This is so hard. That's really when uh, richer forms of education are occurring. That is fascinating, and um, that's the hypercorrection effect. It's almost it's it, you you need the proverbial uh, bat to the head every once in a while, right? You need to you need to you know get hit by a baseball playing baseball to know whoa okay I really need to watch out for that. It's learning, yeah, and it's 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 learning, and it's uh, you know we have this I think norm in society where it's embarrassing to tell other people that they're you know, wrong, or we don't want to be you know shown to be wrong ourselves. As part of my research for this book, I took basketball lessons. Now, I'm going to admit to you, I'm a you know uh, in my 40s, and you know have a little bit of a, a, a belly, and I was so embarrassed, you know, taking basketball lessons. You know, golf that'd be okay for someone my age. Yeah. Tennis, you know, that's that's all right. Who, but basketball. Who lessons, starts basketball at your age? I, exactly, and I remember going to these lessons and trying not to make eye contact with the other parents. You know, they had children the same age <laughs> as my own children. You know, yeah, eleven-year-olds. And um, but you know, it it, it really it, it really helps. It's I, I love it, and and so um, I, I guess there, there's other myths. I mean, um, I, I always I was always told you know you need to go to a you need to go to a really quiet place. You need to turn off all the distractions. And just focus. Is that true? Yeah, that that is true. So minimizing distractions is, is very uh, effective. Uh, we've seen a lot of research uh, about that in the past few years, especially with the rise of computers and you know, social media. It's so easy to get distracted. My favorite study on this that, that came out recently showed that not only do the people who use computers uh, during class, you know, if they're sitting in the lecture at BYU or elsewhere, uh, get distracted, uh, you can tell from research studies that the people sitting next to the people who are using computers also show lower scores uh, on uh, assessment. So, so easy to get distracted. Now, what is interesting to me, and to push back on this idea of, um, you know, quiet, but when I was growing up, I often heard, you know, you should always study in the exact same place, right? So go up to your room, uh, you know, clear a spot on your desk and, and always study there. The research actually suggests that varying up uh, where you study actually can help as long as it's a, it's a quiet place. So you may be going to the library on some days, uh, studying at home and other days. Often when we remember something, we remember something within the context that we learned it. And so uh, there's wonderful studies on this that, you know, scuba drivers, if they learn something underwater, uh, have more difficulty doing it on land. In other oh. words, that sort of, you know, the context becomes a very key to learning the skill. And so if you find yourself in another context, you're like, hmm, this is 
this is weird, right? I mean, this is that issue where you learn math uh, numerically, but then it comes to a word problem or calculating something for an engineering uh, problem. You're like, whoa, I don't know how to, how to do this. So varying the context uh, and the place that you study can be very helpful. That's fascinating. And um, again, just so everybody's up to speed with us, we're speaking with Ulrich Boser, who is um, an author and a, a writer. He uh, is the author of the book Learn Better and uh, maps out the science of learning, destroying a number of myths along the way. He is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, uh, which, by the way, Ulrich, um, boy, you sure have learned a lot and come a long way from a guy that they thought had learning disabilities. Yeah, I really did struggle as a as a kid, and I think that struggle made me reflect a lot more on how people uh, learn, how they gain information. You know, some of these things, as as you spoke about, you know, we come to on our own. You know, many people, as I've been uh, talking to, have said to themselves, you know, I really talking to myself or pretending like I'm teaching someone else is is great for me. You know, what I find interesting about this is that. You know, our brains aren't necessarily unique. I mean, effective ways of, of studying, of learning, of acquiring information are, you know, basically the same for, for most of us. What's really different is, you know, how we gain certain material. In other words, there's this myth out there of learning styles. I don't know if you've ever come yeah. across it. No, totally. That some people are visual learners. Mm-hmm. Is that Gardner? Yeah, there's Gardner in it, and it's really become into a lot of uh, different I, different ways and shapes. Uh, and certainly I've heard it too. You know, some people are kinesthetic learners. They need to learn by doing. Some people are visual learners. Well, it turns out there's no research for it. And, and also when you think about it for a second, I mean, let's say you want to get better at, at acting. Um, you know, reading a little bit about it and, and you were uh, an auditory learner. I mean, in the end, it's clear that just listening to podcasts on acting isn't going to be enough. Yeah. You need to go out there and do some acting. And so... Um, what is important in the end is that the material itself uh, drives how we learn. So if you want to get better at soccer, very important to, to, to go out there and do some soccer. Um, and when it comes to you know academic topics that you know we're uh, often involved in, whether it's getting better at chemistry or, or getting better at uh, you know Microsoft. Uh, Excel, which uh, can seem so difficult to, to all of us, you know, asking ourselves question, questions, quizzing ourselves, you know, making sure that learning is, is very active and engaged is, is really important. Now, talk to me about that, because um, it seems like if you, if you make it active and intentional, so if my goal is learning, um, do I want to state that my goal is learning, or is my goal? Would it be better to sneak in learning in kind of a more not passive, but so it's not the overt focus? Does that make sense? Would it be better to just try to teach something on the side and in fun, or is it better to formalize by saying, "Okay, kids, now I want you to learn this"? You know, that's a, a great question, and. It gets into one issue of just sort of motivation. I think often when we are saying, now it's time to learn, uh, we're like, ooh, you know, <laughs> uh, our eyes roll. But, uh, you know, my kids are fascinated by UFOs. The headlines have been made this week about uh, the Pentagon having spent millions of dollars. And, 
you know, I get them to read some very long <laughs> newspaper articles by saying, hey, you know, did you know that the military has been investing in, in trying to figure out aliens? So, you know, sometimes making it a little bit more um, hidden can be great for, for all of us, right? Yeah, if, right. Um, you know, they're, they're topics we want to learn about. But this idea of it being intentional, especially for those things that maybe we're less excited to do, I'll admit that Microsoft Excel is one of those things that I've never woken up in the middle of the night and said, God, i I got to <laughs> get better at, at that particular skill. Um it's really important to, to be active. Uh, one example that I often give of this, and this is a study uh, done by a guy named Jeff uh, Karpicki, is that he had some people, uh, some subjects, uh, read an article and then answer some questions on it. And so, you know, that would be sort of like most of us in college. And he had another group of people where he uh, had them read the article once and then read it again and answer some questions on it. So the first group uh, got around 25% right. The rereaders, they're sort of, you know, more of those uh, uh, kind of eager students that we remember from college. You know, they read the, the textbook twice, you know, got around 50% right. And then he had a third group. And for this third group, they read the article and then they put the article away and just engaged in free recall. So if the article was about Soviet history, they said, oh, you know, they talked about Gorbachev and Stalin, just engaged in free recall. And those were the individuals who learned the, the most. And that type of active learning where you're quizzing yourself, pushing yourself to try and remember, make connections, you know, very powerful. You know, I have to admit, though, that this type of learning is, is difficult. You know, I, I wrote a whole book arguing that, you know, highlighting, as we talked about at the top, and underlying and, and rereading are ineffective ways to learn. But I recently found myself preparing for a, a talk, and I was standing there in a, uh, my office by myself rereading my notes and, you know, just having my notes going through this speech uh, two or three times. And then I, you know, just really um, put my palm to my head and thought, I can't believe this. You know, I wrote a whole book arguing on the benefits of more active types of learning. And yet here I am, you know, rereading my notes because you want that, that comfort that holding your notes has when the evidence is far more clear that I would, uh, give a much better lecture, at least a, a much more fluent lecture, if I had put away my notes uh, and just, you know, stood in my office by myself, pretending like the audience was in front of me, and, and giving that lecture a far more active way to uh, get better at the skill of presentation. Yeah. No, that's so, so fascinating. Is, um, I guess as we, uh, man, Ulrich, I could talk to you forever. In fact, we probably have to have you back because there is so much more to get into about other myths of, uh, you know, you know, repetition, repetition, practice makes perfect. I mean, I know you've got so much insight into that. What what advice would you give us as parents to be able to to maybe more aggressively, more appropriately, effectively instill the ability to learn how we learn with our children? One thing that I see is, is very common is uh, cramming. So we've all heard this, you know, you shouldn't cram for a test the night before. But the benefits of spacing learning out over time were enormous. The fact is, is that we all forget how much we forget. In other words, we're overconfident about the degree to which we're going to remember something. And the solution to that is to spread learning out over time. The more that you, um, you know, revisit material, the more that you remember it. Um, and, and this is just a quirk to the way that the brain works, right? We don't want to remember where we parked the car last month. We want to remember when we parked the car today and right. the more that you recall it. So one thing that I'd really encourage parents is to 
spread out learning over time. So uh, we're coming on the holiday break. Uh, if your children are doing a little bit of math or a little bit of fractions, you know, do a little bit of it uh, during the break. Uh, in my household, we've stopped doing homework on Wednesday night and tried to do it more over the weekend. Um, you know, when you think about it, doing homework on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursday evening is, is actually a form of cramming, and it doesn't take much to move uh, some of that work to the weekend, yeah. um, but it spreads the learning out over time and, and then makes students more likely to uh, retain it. That's great and, and really so helpful, I think, uh, t- to know to know some of these little tricks of the trade. The book is Learn Better by Ulrich Bozer and uh, – Folks, it's about a permanent process. This is about being able to do this forever. Learning is something that will never go away, hopefully. And it's not just something that we do in school and we're done with once we graduate. Fun stuff, folks. Uh, Helping us all uh, take it to the next level. Learning how to learn. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back with a little Coach's Corner next. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back. You know, um, again, so many of us loved, uh, maybe loved high school for certain reasons. Some of us could hardly wait to get out. I found personally that I took off in my own learning uh, after high school, into college, after about my second or third year of college, when I finally was choosing things that I wanted to learn about. And then what else I found is um, I've just been able to, I had a what I call just a really great platform of knowledge in my field. And I've been able to just add a little bit here, add a little bit there. And that's one of the great benefits also, and uh, things they're finding out in, in, uh, in learning is you only need a little bit every day that you can add to your current base of knowledge. Uh, Albert Einstein has a great quote that says, education is what remains after one has forgotten what one has learned in school. Right, So we will eventually outpace the shelf life of our school learning, and at some point we then need to pick up another form and another way of learning. And with all the podcasts, with, with radio shows like this one, with – I mean there's so many places we can all go to continue our learning process that let's not let our brain stop learning. Let's keep pushing at it and let's, uh, let's push just as much learning into our minds and our brains as we are social media or anything else. Just a little advice from your coach, Dr. Matt. It's the House of Bows. Welcome back. It's that time, folks, and it's that sad time. McKenna Bouse is in the house, but it is her last time. It's your last segment. That it is. How depressing is this? I know. Graduating. Ah! It's the worst. But that's such great news. And then you get to go home to Michigan, hang out with your fam. Yeah. It'll be good. And then find a job. Exactly. And start the grind. Indeed. But before you leave us, you wanted to do one little, one more mind bender with us, which is about how to be a little bit better at buying gifts. Exactly. It's, you know, that time of the year. Yeah. And for those of us who are procrastinators and haven't gotten all our gifts yet, or maybe people who... In fact, I'm doing it right now. There you go. Or, or people <laughs> who uh, have bought their gifts, but maybe should think about returning those Yeah, that wasn't a good choice. Right. Um. Got some some tips okay. about how to make that more effective. Please. So one of the misconceptions that we run into with gifts is we get really caught up in the how we feel about giving it. Yeah. And that is like 
very often will lead you wrong That's every the, time. Yeah, because it's it, yeah, you might choose a bigger gift, a different gift exactly. because of how you're feeling. You know, we're going for like that wow factor. Yeah. And that wow factor is ties into <laughs> right when they open it, but that, it doesn't carry over and it doesn't equal value. <laughs> so, a couple different things. You know, you want to give a gift that's desirable and enjoyable. And that's where that we think that wow factor comes in. What that really translates to is something with value. People prefer gifts that they're actually going to use. Oh, it's so true. Yeah. And so practicality can actually go a long way in terms of making something enjoyable. Right, right. Another thing is, um, you know, a lot of times we're like, oh, I want to give this super thoughtful, super, you know, special present. A lot of times we translate that into expensive. Look at how much money I was willing to spend on yes. you. Cost really doesn't matter as much to the receiver as we think it does. Because again, it goes back to that idea of value. Just because something's expensive doesn't mean it'll get used. That's true. And doesn't mean they're going to like it. Oh, so true. And so you may as well go cheaper. Yeah. Less expensive, but hit the right mark. Exactly. So That's cool. do not feel like you need to break the bank. Um, and with sort of with the surprise factor, a lot of times we're like, oh, you know, they said that, but I don't want to get them exactly word for word, the thing they asked yeah. me. That's no fun. <laughs> People, like they've surveyed, they've asked people favor gifts that they have explicitly asked for. It's, yeah, yeah. I, I asked for it. I, exactly. But what if you don't, my wife, my daughter is asking me, what do I want? What do you want, dad? What do you want? And I honestly don't know. You're just one of those people then that are just Horribly hard to buy gifts for. I am. And, but I'm really not. I just don't. I just need to think of something. I, I think then, you know, a good rule of thumb is if you really don't have that very well-lined out list of yeah. I want X, you know, Y and Z, that what you should do is, again, okay, you can keep things cheap. You don't have to make it expensive. Yeah. And sort of within that, start looking at what is something that they do frequently and therefore, like something that ties into that, something that they will use a lot. You know, if right. you, ha- you know somebody who likes working in the shed, maybe something to add to their toolbox. Somebody who really loves cooking, maybe getting them a new set of spatulas. You that know, good, yeah. something that they do frequently that, that, um, that's going to get used a lot. You can't go wrong in that direction. But get into them is really what you're saying. Exactly. And, um, and then and, – and, and listen because they're probably giving you some pretty good clues. Yeah. I, I, I always just look much. at the mannequins. That's how I choose my wife's clothes is by, oh, that would look good on that thing that mannequin is wearing would look good on my wife. Hey, if it works, it works. And then I always have to figure out the size thing, and that's awkward. Gift receipts. Security gets called. Hey, sir, leave that mannequin alone. Um, well, good to have you, McKenna. You are the best. Oh, we will miss you. you. Oh, miss being here. We're losing. And McKenna Bouse is now out of the house and going back to her home to start a real life. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Top of the morning to you. Or the bottom of the morning for some of you uh, on the East Coast that are just, you're already halfway through the day. Isn't it mid-morning? What is mid-morning? Like uh, 10 I o'clock, think 11 o'clock? Yeah. Is it pre-lunch? Is pre-lunch mid-morning? Mid-morning is when breakfast ends at McDonald's. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll let McDonald's figure that out. 
Uh, pre-mourning is before you have something to be sad about. Oh. Post-mourning this... is after you've been sad about mm. something. This is another great conversation starter. We had one the last yeah. hour or the opening hour maybe even where we talked about – how, uh, how many days until Christmas? Yeah. How do you do the math on that? Well, and you and your wife have a total discrepancy in the countdown. It's causing some contention. Well, that's why you use those nativity board. What were they like? The twenty, the twelve. What's like the calendar? Oh, yeah, yeah, like the nativity calendar thing. The and advent calendar. You just, you just but again, open up little doors. But again, does it end on Christmas or does it end on Christmas Eve? Hmm? See, and that's important because if you have the advent calendar that has a little door that opens with chocolate in it, you got to make sure you only eat that chocolate on the right day. Yeah, except, okay, here's, well, wouldn't you want it to end on Christmas? I would think so. Because you don't want everything to just end on Christmas Eve. Yeah, then you're kind of in this weird lingo then Christmas state between never comes. Christmas Eve right. night and Christmas You always Christmas have day. to count Christmas Day. That's, oh, wow. What? This is a definitive answer from you. Well, and think about uh, the child, the the Christ child, would not have been born on Christmas Eve. It's the day that ma- that would matter. That's the day he he well, came. And many believe that he was not actually born on December twenty yeah, fifth. Well. But that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> so yeah. what you got? We got a tweet about this, right? Yeah, we did. In fact, really cool. Um, uh, Amy Soik at O Jingle Bells. O Jingle Bells. Awesome. You can change your name as many times as you want now. Okay. Oh. Just yeah. because of the, and so the holidays. Twitter allowed that. Amy Soik is oh jingle bells. She said uh, at Doctor Matt show Christmas in the Navy is four days and a wake up. So from right now you have four more days and a wake up and it's Christmas in the Navy where you can sail the seven seas. Uh, Amy, we're sorry that he yeah. sang that song. Uh, he just sullied the <laughs> reputation. It was, it was of going the US so Navy. well, and then you had to break into song. Mm. Who complains about the village people? Come on. They're a, a national treasure. Actually, the Me, village. The I village do. has been complaining about them. They're, Without the village people, the YMCA would no longer exist. So true. So true. And you wouldn't have those really awkward crowd moments at every major NFL or NBA game. <laughs> I don't think it's that prevalent. It might be a regional thing. Is it? Yeah. It's not as big na- nationwide. No, nationwide, I don't think that's something that's continued. Well, just so everybody knows, it's still a huge song in Utah. Just isolated mountain communities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of awkward. Yeah. Hey, so much to cover today. We're going to be talking with Dr. Brian Willoughby about do you celebrate your relationship? Mm. If we gave as much attention to our marriages and our relationships as we do our um, our Christmas holiday, right? boy, we would probably have the best marriage on earth. And I have a story coming up. Excellent. About, about com- competition in marriage. Ooh. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's that's going to get tense. Yeah. We'll even ask Brian about that. Plus, BYU Sports Nation, we'll be talking to them a little bit later, find out what's coming up on their show. Uh, but first to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? We've been talking about the tax plan. It yes. Pa- it passed. Sort of, and then they had to do. I think they're going to have a vote. Either they've had the vote, or they'll have it again this morning to kind of clean up some mistakes. Yeah, and uh, then we'll have the tax plan officially until they have to amend it next month when everyone starts reading it. Uh, with time to running out, Congress is racing once again to pass a short-term spending bill to fund the federal agencies and avoid a government shutdown heading into the Christmas holidays. 
The House is expected to vote as early as today on a bill that would provide a full year of defense spending and fund non-defense programs that exist at existing levels through January 19th, you know, kicking the can down the road. The legislation also will include $81 billion in disaster aid funding for states ravaged by this year's hurricanes and forest fires. Senate leaders have pledged to pass a spending bill before midnight Friday when the government will run out of money unless Congress acts. Even with the deadline fast approaching, major differences remain that could complicate efforts to keep the government running. Democrats have also threatened to withhold their support for any bill that does not include legal protections for so-called dreamers. Mitch McConnell, Majority Leader in the Senate, says that's not happening this year. Don't even think about it. Don't even go there. We're going to kick this can uniformly down the down the road, <laughs> and then we'll deal with it next year when we show back up for work. Oh, brother. Yeah, they don't want to touch anything else this year. The Washington State Department of Transportation affirmed Tuesday its commitment to carry passenger trains on a recently completed bypass that was the site of Monday's derailment. Janet Mackin, a spokesperson for Washington State's Department of Transportation Rail Division, said officials are confident a refurbished 14-mile section of track known as the Point Defiance Bypass will begin operating in due time once the investigation into Monday's accident is complete. So just because there was a train wreck, we're not going to stop running trains down this rail. Yeah, nothing's going to stop us. It's part of an $800 million in federal cash used to enhance service between Seattle and Portland and... There was a mistake. We're going to figure it out, but we still have to hey, use this. Maybe so. the key is you can run trains down the track, but you might want to slow them down Just a bit. Slow them down a little bit. Just slow them down. Or, hey, put that one positive braking thing yeah, put, on. Put the braking system to help you know people from running trains off tracks. Uh, the mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, said the city is ex- uh, council is expected to pass an order uh, that will prohibit the use of bump stocks. This is oh, according yeah. to Reuters. The one Las of the, Vegas shooter trick. Right. One of the common refrains that you hear, whether it was in Texas or Vegas or Sandy Hook, is that a good guy with a gun could have stopped the carnage. Columbia Mayor Steve Benjamin, he is a Democrat, told the Newswire uh, Reuters in an interview, interview Monday, it's time for good guys with guns to begin passing some really good policy. Yeah. You know? He goes, well, how, about, how about any policy? He goes, it's, it's uh, four of six city council members reportedly signed off on the plan. After reading through the proposed measure earlier this month, Benjamin uh, told the Newswire that local police and council members who support the Second Amendment also stand behind the measure. It's tough, though. I mean, you make policy, but if people want something bad enough, they're going to find a way to get it. Totally. They're totally going to get it. They're going to get what they want. And finally. Yes. For this point. Then we'll get on to the competition and marriage story. After watching several videos online about a Grinch who wanted to steal Christmas, concerned citizen... Uh, Tylon Pittman, he's five, did what he's told to do in an emergency. He called 911. Pittman told a Mississippi dispatcher that he knew about the Grinch and warned her to be on the lookout. The amused woman later wrote about their conversation on Facebook in a post seen by uh, Brim police officer Lauren DeVell. She grew up loving How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the movie, and she wanted to get in touch with Pittman. She stopped by his house on Saturday, much to the surprise of his family, who had no idea they lived with a junior crime stopper. (laughs) DeVille promised she'd catch the Grinch if she ever saw him, and Pittman, who wants to be a cop when he grows up, said that the Grinch, uh, if he had the nerve to show up at his house, he would call the police so they could come back to my house and take him to jail. Whoa! DeVille just so happened to find the Grinch in town on Monday. They set up a situation where he could. And joined by Pittman, the pair apprehended and placed him in a holding cell. The Clarion Ledger uh, shares this story saying, Standing face-to-face with his nemesis, Pittman asked the Grinch why he was stealing Christmas, and the perp, dressed in a Grinch costume, responded by just sort of shrugging your shoulders, going, Eh, eh, that's what I do. I'm the Grinch. 
Unbelievable. But so five you year got old, him. Five-year-old calls, and they uh, made a fun little holiday situation for him by <laughs> arresting the Grinch. Can I just share a fun little tidbit with you about the singer of the Grinch song, Thurl Ravenscroft? Yes. Uh, not only did he sing You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, yeah, but he was also the voice of Tony the Tiger. They're great. Really? Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. So Tony and the Grinch are related. No, 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 no. The Grinch was voiced by Boris Karloff. Oh, just the singer the of that The singer of Grinch that song, song Thurl Ravenscroft, was also the voice of Tony the Tiger. I can't remember who told me that. But uh, it was a senior citizen said that was her favorite Christmas song. Really? That version of The Grinch and even quoted uh, this the man's name you just quoted. And I think she told you that over a bowl of Frosted Flakes as well. They're great. Exactly. Awesome. See, the little bits of information that will make you the bomb at work today. Go throw that one around. Tony the Tiger. Doesn't that and just the make you singer. happy? Totally. Two things that make you really happy. Absolutely. Sugared cereal. Who doesn't love that? Uh, let's get to the headline. No, not the headlines. The, it's another this, story. It's no, about, do them again. Do them again. <laughs> this time, get them right. Terry. Competition in marriage. So uh, this writer, it's a website called Fatherly. Yes, I've seen that. Uh, the writer's named Jeff Ashworth, and he writes about his personal experience competing with his wife. And he says, uh, stoking one another's competitive instincts is one of the secrets of our marriage. For starters, playing games together allows us to argue about stuff that doesn't actually matter. It also saves us quite a bit of money, a thing that doesn't matter, or a thing that does matter is money. So we're not arguing about money, we're saving money. And one of the things we are, it's one of the things I argue about the most. It, it, it avoids that yeah. that confrontation because it's a cheap date to just pull out a, a, a you know a board game and go crazy, I guess. She says competition, or he says competition that long heralded engine of the free market can benefit your marriage. Yeah. Beyond the aforementioned bonus of keeping date night relatively spin free, studies suggest that an evening of facing off might be just what draws you closer together. Really? Watching my wife excel in a physical or mental challenge reminds me of the reasons I fell in love with her in the first place. She always has a strategy as well as three backup plans. She never quits. And her uh, withering trash talk will make you wonder if you should. <laughs> yeah. She says she also does this adorable dance when she's victorious. And one, yeah. one of the uh, on more than one occasion, I've considered losing on purpose just to watch her celebrate. <laughs> right? So you get to see your, your spouse like in that. this sort of um, unvarnished... Yeah. Un, you kind know, of primeval state. Yeah, and my I've been in this with my wife. Yeah. As we've done certain things and we're going head to head and then I've beat her just barely and just this like scream that comes out because she can't be at a, she can't believe that all her effort and wow. she just lost. See, but what happens when you're the one that always loses to your spouse? Well, she needs to be more competitive, so that's what she says. I have a story about that. Yeah. My wife and I bought the game Ticket to Ride and okay. immediately we were hooked. We were playing it every night multiple times per night, and uh, I would just clean the floor with her every time. But then things took a turn, and she she figured figured out my strategy and used it even better than I did. And uh, so ever since then, I've had a really tough time beating her. Yeah. So one night we're playing Ticket to Ride, and uh, I'm noticing that I'm not going to be able to win. 
because she's blocking my – she keeps taking all the paths that I need to take. So I'm not getting any of my routes. I'm not going to explain the rules of yeah. this game. But – so I thought, okay, well, instead of just playing it like I would normally play it, my only chance to beat her is to completely sabotage her. So I – started putting my trains on routes that I wasn't even going for and that was just blocking her. So I I just did what I could to block her so I could take her down with me and then hope for the better score. Yeah. So you went for the so lose Before lose. we even finished the game, when it was my wife's turn, she grabs the board with both hands and flings all of the trains across the room. Really? And that was the end of the game. <laughs> Cricket, cricket, game over. Now, I'm sure she's okay with me sharing this story yeah. because we had a good laugh about it afterwards. And I was not being the nicest person in the world. Well, by... So was she mad that you weren't playing with integrity, like you were gaming the game? No, and the funny thing is I don't even think she was mad. I think it was more of just, well, this is pointless to continue on. Yeah, so why let's are we just, playing a Let's game? just have a clean slate and yeah. just, yeah. See, maybe this is why I don't like board games. Really? Yeah. Uh, what I have found is when you play board games, um, a lot of times, half the time, half the time you're the loser, half the time you might be the winner. Mm-hmm. But when you play with people that play a lot of board games, you might be the loser a lot of times. Yeah, because they're just good at mm-hmm. games. So I've just decided it's better to not play any games. We've also just been watch Netflix. Really big into puzzles, and puzzles yeah. are tough around my house because if you don't finish them in the first sitting. Inevitably, one kid is going to get their hands on the pieces and just throw them all over the place. Yeah, your your family's young. You got to do it in one sitting. But we we do like thousand piece puzzles at, yeah. on our vacations, and mm-hmm. that takes a week. Now, are you see this brings up competition again in puzzles, yeah. which is I guess could be considered some type of. A I'm game. a competitive puzzle. Player. Are you the type of person? That when you can see that the puzzle is coming to an end, there are only a few pieces left. Are you yeah. the type of person that hoards the yeah. rest of those pieces uh-huh. so that you can be the uh-huh. one to put in the yeah. last piece? I'm the closer. I'm the closer. <laughs> yeah. And, and I – oh, boy. It's, I, there's something about that where you don't have to think. That's a great holiday tradition. You don't have to think to do a puzzle. You can put on music. You can talk. Watch TV. You can turn on shows that you don't need to watch but uh-huh. you can just listen to. Yeah. That's like how Christmas I – that's movies all the are, Netflix I yeah. watch are like that. So the author says competition with your spouse allows you to argue about stuff that doesn't matter. It sure. also lets you know exactly who the other person is. Okay, yeah. Mm. Because any sort of like they're trying to be nice might sort of disappear a little bit. You can kind of get an insight who they are. So this would help in dating. Absolutely. So you get some insight into this person when their guard is down. It's cute. My daughter and her husband, they're very competitive. and But he's like 6'4", and she's five. Mm-hmm. Three, but she'll beat him in tennis. She'll beat him in a lot of things, and then he'll beat her in a lot of stuff. And they compete a lot, and it's super fun. I it's was cute. always hmm. told, you know, when you're looking for somebody to marry, look for how they treat their mother, and uh, look for how they act yeah. when they're playing games. No. Yeah, I was taught that, and uh, make sure they're rich. <laughs> that doesn't that could yeah. hurt. You can marry more money. In one day, then you can make in a lifetime. Well, when in the game of Monopoly, I've made quite a bit of money. Yeah, not to brag or anything. Well, and you shouldn't because it's not. It's, it's not, not like real. It's, it's not real money. Like, so, is that? Do you think that's a effective yeah. tool that you could use in your counseling? Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm, I will now use that. In fact, I'm gonna take it out of our throwaway pile because, huh? and I'm going to now 
not throw it away. Uh, it's effect- It's now mine. Okay. I'm just. I it thought is. that was very an interesting now, approach. You can be too competitive. Yes. Right. Like, and in your arguments and your conversations, you probably ought not make your conversations real com- real competitive. It's not about who wins this fight. Right. But Let's isn't that how understand. it goes? The older you get, the more rooted you you are in your convictions. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, that could be a problem, right? I, I mean, my mother, my mother-in-law and father-in-law are two of the nicest people I know. But it is kind of funny to just sit back and watch them argue over really frivolous things and and just get a good chuckle. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. It's fun. That's life, my friends. Let's get to some other headlines. Jeffrey, do you have anything, uh, any other uh, empty news headlines we should be paying attention to? Well, do you want a crook story or a creepy crook story? I always go with the creepy crook story. Yes. So we – have you ever – has your home ever been broken into? Uh, no. Really? Knock on wood. You're so lucky. I've had my business broken into. <laughs> and broken into and broken into. What about your car? Has your car ever been broken uh, into? Car never broken into. What? No. I've had my car broken into multiple times. Man, where had, do you park? Had my all of these experiences happen in Seattle, by the way. Okay, yeah. So um, there's this Florida man who's been arrested, and to to make it even scarier of an experience, because when your your home is broken into, your car is broken into, it's a very violating feeling. Oh yeah. It's very confusing, too. You walk out and you, you're not quite sure what, what happened. But imagine this happening while you are either in the car or while, while you are either in your home. Very unsettling, mm-hmm. right? This makes it worse. Uh, so there's this woman who is in the middle of sleeping. And when all of a sudden her cat was startled, which woke her up. When I opened my eyes, I could see the shadow of a man standing at the end of my bed. (laughs) This is Brittany Klein. He was standing perfectly still. I said, hello? And when I said hello, he dropped very slowly to the ground. (laughs) And as soon as I saw the shadow move down to the ground, I knew somebody was there. Klein then flipped on the lights and noticed a man crouched down at the foot of her bed, petting the cat. Oh, creepy. She then told the man to leave, in which he complied. The intru- And this is where it kind of turns funny and awkward. The intruder, later identified as Jasper Fiorenza, had to climb over a baby gate to exit Klein's bedroom. <laughs> Just tripping over stuff. <laughs> and allowing police to pull a fingerprint off her bedroom door frame. Oh, no. Fiorenza way. attempted to return to Klein's home the following night and was promptly arrested. Yeah. Fiorenza now faces charges of burglary, resisting an officer without violence, and unlawful petting of a cat. <laughs> that is creepy. Yeah. Hey, I see you. And he just slinks down Sorry. to the ground. I just wanted to pet your cat. Do you mind if I pet your kitty? That is, that's crazy. Yeah. That's weird. It makes you wonder, was he there for something else or does he just have a creepy cat? He's a cat lover. Yeah, infatuation with cats. Some people just love cats. You've heard of the crazy cat woman. This yeah. is the crazy cat this, guy. This is the guy, the crazy cat guy. Guys and, don't collect cats. They just yeah. like to pet them. Sorry, I thought it was my cat. <laughs> that is so <laughs> creepy. All right, well, there's good news straight ahead. We're going to be talking with Brian Willoughby, a professor here at Brigham Young University, about how to celebrate your relationship. You might want to have some some big rituals, some big traditions when it comes to love. That's straight ahead on the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends. Joining us in studio, Dr. Ryan Willoughby, who's an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at BYU. And uh, just a, a great friend of the show. We, we need him desperately to help us understand our romantic relationships. Yeah, it's good yeah. to be here again. Thanks. Good to have you. And uh, today we're talking about rituals and really how to celebrate a relationship. Um, in an article um, I read, we, for example, graduation... We make a big deal about a graduation. Right. Tons of kind of ritual, pomp, circumstance, tradition. And so we actually remember those days. We remember our wedding day because right. we made it a really big deal. Yeah. But it seems like in marriage overall, we kind of then get away from making these big moments. Right. Yeah. The, those are big cultural rituals that we have. Yeah. Right. That the big kind of moments that we have. But you're right. In relationships, we don't have those a lot. And actually, a lot of families don't have rituals on their own. These are these are traditions that you have around holidays, around birthdays, around other things. And, and particularly in relationships, we've got Valentine's Day, but yeah. that's not, you know, mm. we, we can go into that right. little side tangent yeah. if you want. I can go off a, a long time about Valentine's Day. We've got <laughs> anniversaries, but we usually don't build actual rituals around those things. Right. They kind of happen. We go through the motions, but they're not like you said, these these bigger Rituals and because a ritual has to have symbolism behind it. Yeah, and a lot of these other things we have in our relationships don't have that symbolism. Talk about rituals. Uh, the research abounds in the effectiveness of a ritual at creating stability. Right. Yeah, this is one of the most powerful things we have in relationships. In fact, what I what I tell my students sometimes is that if you could only give me one piece of information about a relationship, I would want to know if they have rituals because that is the best indicator of if it's a healthy relationship or not because yeah. they are so powerful like you said they stabilize the relationship and what we think happens is at an individual level when we get stressed out we all have the things we do that de-stress us right, right. you go for a jog you go watch a movie relationships have built up stress and tension yeah. too and we think it's the rituals that we have that actually de-stress the relationship oh interesting and that stabilizes yeah i always it. used to say it's kind of like the tupperware where you used to have to bur- you'd burp your Tupperware. Right. You have to yeah. like let the excess air out yeah. and then seal it. But the rituals give us the chance to do that yes. in a consistent, predictable, mm-hmm. safe way. Yeah. So, so talk – explain it. Explain ritual. How is like standing for a national anthem – that's a ritual. Right. How is that uh, – This. what would that look like in a marriage? What's a ritual that would be equivalent mm-hmm. to that in a marriage? Right. So to be a ritual, it's got to have two pieces. It's got to be something that you repeat on a regular basis. Now, that could just be once a year. It could be once a week, once a month. But we have to repeat it. But then the key is it has to have deeper meaning behind it. It's like you said, you know, when you stand for the Pledge of Allegiance or stand for the National Anthem, there's symbolism tied to it. There's there's power, right? And so now that can look really unique to every relationship. But just to give an example, let's say that on our wedding day, there was a poem that was especially meaningful to us. Yeah. And so on our wedding day, we, we, you know, we snuck away for a couple minutes to the side and we read that together. And now every year on our anniversary, we find a time on that day to get together That's and read cool. that poem together. Right. right. That's an example of a relationship ritual. It's something we do repeatedly and it's going to build some deeper symbolic meaning yeah. to it about our relationship. That's cool. And so rituals, they don't just have to happen to us accidentally. We can formally institute rituals in the marriage. Right. And that's actually, I think, really important for modern day couples. Because like I said, one of the the problems many relationships and families deal with now is what's called under-ritualization, which means they don't have hardly any rituals because there's no time. I've got my job, you've got your job, we've got kids, we've got family. When do we have time to do things together? 
But that's why you have to be intentional about it. Yeah. Intentionality is huge with rituals that you're right. We need to think about what are some traditions we can create, again, not just with our kids, right. but with each other. And these can be – I teach they can be daily, mm-hmm. weekly, monthly, annually. Yeah. But it's – I always say too, it, the rituals are the things that when your partner dies, those are the things you're going to miss. Right. And they d- you've so consistently done them. Right. And they don't have to be big things. No. Right? No, like no. you said, they can be daily. You know, before we go to bed, we read a chapter yeah. out of a book we're right. reading together. It could be just you hold hands mm-hmm. a certain way. Right. This weird way you yeah. always interlock fingers minus one. Right. And it's funny that you mentioned weird because I'll, I'll tell people this sometimes. Rituals are what make us unique. They yeah. are the weird things. The, pe- the things that people look at us or maybe see us do and say, why do you do that? Yeah. Well, it's because this is what we do. In our, it, there's an identity thing there. That is so that this, cool. This is what makes us different and unique and in our heads better mm-hmm. than everyone else. No, in fact, um, in my marriage, <clears throat> if I clear my throat like that, uh, my wife, when we are attuned mm-hmm. and connected, she'll say, what did you say? And then I say, you heard me. You heard me. <laughs> It's totally corny. Nobody gets it but us, but it's ours. Right. And then I've noticed if we're in a fight <clears throat> and I clear my throat, if she doesn't do the ritual, then it's almost like a violation. Like, right. yeah. oh, see, you're going to divorce me now? <laughs> <laughs> but the ritual actually makes me know she's in. Right. Yeah. It's it, powerful. Yeah, it has that deeper meaning to it. That's so cool. And so you're you're saying that is one way a major way in fact a, a much more a bigger way than most of us recognize to really strengthen a relationship yeah they they are really really powerful things you've, and you've got to you've got to i guess um be, you got to be formal about it like you got to mm-hmm. sit down and say let's make this formal right because they take that effort like i said is is there things that are oftentimes outside the norm things that i have to think about because they're a little weird maybe odd yeah. i have to be thinking about them yeah. right they, they're not going to just happen naturally and, and and that's where that power comes from because i think there's also this i'm i'm showing my partner that i'm thinking about them yeah. i'm thinking about the relationship i'm putting effort into what i'm doing that's true i noticed like after 911 we i mean we we were doing you know national anthems flag ceremonies forever but i noticed after 911 that symbol meant more. Right. And so I assume the same thing could matter in our relationships. If you, it's easy to like have a cute little, you know, hand holding gesture you do as a marriage. But, you know, that same gesture after your spouse has been in a car accident right. could be pretty monumental. Yeah. Because they, they do that one gesture with you. Yeah. Because again, that, that connects to that identity. It's, it's showing you that I'm invested in who we are no matter what we go through. And again, back to the, the stabilizing factor, that's where that kind of de-stressing comes from yeah. in relationships. As we built up, you know, these little disagreements, these little conflicts, and then you make, you know, you say that little phrase that only we say to each other, or you do that yeah. thing that we only do together. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's, yeah. that's why I'm with you. That's why I'm putting up right. with this. Now right. I remember. Now you're not such a jerk, but you are, but ugh, I want to forgive you. But um, does – because I guess this is another key is a lot of times we think that uh, good relationships don't fight. Good relationships don't have big problems. But isn't it more about um, how you recover? Right. And part of – it seems like the rituals are a really important way to recover. Mm-hmm. Because we already know if we're going to bed, we have a ritual to read a chapter of a book together. Right. So by bedtime, we either have to reconcile this or the rituals force you to actually have to face each other. Yeah. And that's the other fun thing about rituals is that when they have that deeper meaning, we get connected to them and we feel off 
if we don't do them. Interesting. Right? It, it, yeah. we're, around Christmas, this is a good illustration for people. If you think about your Christmas traditions you have with your family and ask yourself, what if we didn't do that this year? And yeah. like, whoa, hold on. It's not Christmas anymore. It's going to feel off. That's what these do to relationships. Like you said, is if we know it's supposed to happen and, and we're, we're in tension or in conflict, it's like, well, we, we got to fix this yeah. now. So that it's we true. can get to our our chapter reading. It's totally, it's totally true. And then, and it may not be like perfect at the end of the night, right. but it, I guess it says we're consistent. We right. are always going to come back and face each other on this. Mm-hmm. And then, so should I do the ritual? And this gets into the kind of the independent view of our world today. Oh, so am I supposed to do a ritual if I'm not feeling it? Like yeah. in that moment, am I really supposed to read with the jerk that was kind of offensive five hours earlier? Sure. Why not? I, again, it, it shows that effort, shows that connection, and and sometimes it can it can be de-stressing for you, right? Yeah, it, it might have nothing to do with what you're having conflict about or tension about, but it gives that 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 deeper meaning is tied very closely to emotion. Yeah, and so it can bring in those positive emotions that can replace the negative emotions, and then maybe when you're done reading that chapter from Lord of the Rings or whatever you're reading, yeah, it's oh okay now. Let's talk this through. You know, I want to apologize. This isn't as big of a deal. You know, it can yeah. actually bring you to a better place to compromise. And and, and help you heal. Right. Um, I, I look at it too that – so if I didn't like how the election went or whatever, I still would sing the national anthem. Right. Because the the ritual is more committed to the institution than my mood or my partner in that moment. Right. Yeah, it's something it's a bigger deeper. thing. Yeah, it's a deeper thing. It connects to why we are together in the first place. That's huge. Um, do you feel like it's and uh, maybe this is really subtle and not that big of a deal, but does it matter how we talk about marriage? Because sometimes it seems like we we think of it like the ball and chain and ah, uh, ugh. Mm-hmm. Uh. So it's if I if I give the illusion, and I know there's great research about how people talk about their love says a lot for where they are in love. Um, but does it matter how we frame marriage? And is it that big of a deal to always talk about it as a trial? I think so, because because it interferes with things like relationship rituals. And as as I said earlier, Valentine's Day is a great example. Of this, yeah. Right. I, I, I go no, off you, on my bandstand on no, Valentine's no, Day all the time yeah. because – Valentine's Day is this this great day where this belief that we have that relationships and marriage in particular are, are transitions and relationships of loss comes into play. How do most people approach Valentine's Day, especially if you've been married for you know yeah. about five years on? <laughs> yeah. It's dreaded, right? We don't talk about it, but right. everyone dreads Valentine's right. Day for the most part, right? Yeah, I got to find something. It's like force. And what do you do, right? You go on dinner, you get some yeah. flowers, you get, you know, you kind of go through the Chocolates. motions. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't have a positive view. It doesn't have a positive spin in our minds because it is seen as, oh, this is getting in my way mm-hmm. today, right? And that's because for most couples, Valentine's Day doesn't have rituals. Now, you want to see a couple that loves Valentine's Day. I guarantee what they're doing is something really unique. They're not going to dinner and a movie and getting flowers. Yeah. They're doing something different. They're yeah. doing something unique. They've built a ritual around it. And so I always tell my students and I tell couples this is – then why why wait till February fourteenth to do that? Right, set right. that ritual up other times, exactly. you know, on, on a more regular basis. But you're right; is that when we view marriage as a relationship of loss, of a relationship that gets in my way, it's not going to be very motivating for me to create these weird things with you. Yeah, the, these relationship rituals, even though, like I said, they're so powerful, because it would oh, reinforce more the ball time. Those more things. Right. There's another one more thing I got to remember to do on a regular <laughs> basis. 
Um, There's so much expected of me. Right. Exactly. But then instead of thinking about that, it like that, we can reverse that and say, these aren't huge things. They don't have to take a lot of effort. And like I said, this, this in many ways has the power to change my relationship in some ways because of how powerful this stabilizing agent is. Yeah. And I, I, what, don't you feel like most couples have – they already have the rituals. They might just want to formalize them. Like yeah. you already do that squeeze my hand three times right. for I love you. You already do. We already do that. Yeah. But we just don't – we haven't formalized yeah. it. So you can make it super formal. Then it almost takes on a different level of like it's sacred. It's like right. now it's a sacred fiber right. in this marriage. Yeah. In fact, even beyond that, what a lot of couples have is they've got those memories of remember that one time when we did this. Yeah. Remember that one time when you did this? That was awesome. Couples can locate those things, those memories. Yeah. And then, like you said, formalize them and say, how how could we make that happen weekly or monthly or daily? That's cool. And and I I mean, it could be you could even then we like we have rituals for anniversaries, rituals for our birthdays Mm -hmm. that, that there's so many. And this could also, I guess, go into family life. Right. Families could have oh, yeah. rituals. Yep. Families need to have rituals. The birthday, it's the same, yeah, plate. Same process. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in relationships, I think another one you mentioned that's really important for a lot of couples is anniversaries. Because for a lot of couples, anniversary is just Valentine's Day 2.0. Right. In fact, one of the things that um, when I teach on BYU's campus, our marriage preparation, one of my assignments for them is on your wedding day, I want you to create a marriage ritual. Sometime during that day, right? And and realize that your wedding ceremony is not a ritual. These are all cultural things. And as I point out, they're all cultural things that are more for your parents than you. Right, You know, you're just going to get get tired. Yeah, and you can get (laughs) presents and you're going to go through the motions. I'm like, find 5, 10, 15 minutes on that day and find something you can do that then every anniversary you can come back to. That's great. So that your anniversary doesn't turn into another go to dinner, go through the motions, right? There's something we can do on that day that's special to us. That's awesome. And I guess, uh, again, but notice you're saying it's work. Yeah. But it's also – you're also paid back for your work. Yeah. Like anything else in life, if if you ask most people that are married or even before they get married, is that one of the most important three, four things in your life? Everyone says yes. Oh, yeah. Well, then put some effort into it, right? All these other things you care about, you put effort into. Yeah. Put some effort into your marriage. Is there? Can you think of one thing that – any advice you'd give to somebody out there that's listening thinking, oh, well, yeah, I mean I would like to want my marriage. Right. And that would be neat if I wanted to do any of this. Mm-hmm. What do you do if you're not feeling it? Right. It, it, maybe your partner's done something or you're just not feeling the love. Yeah. This is the power of rituals. What I'd tell that person is just try some. Just get some going. Yeah, pick, pick one or two and, and don't think too much about them. Yeah. And just start doing them. And I've actually talked to people that have done that before in relationships, and they come back kind of amazed. Like, like you know, I It's thought, like a miracle to Yeah, I, I, I didn't think anything of this. I, we had an awkward conversation. We thought of something stupid, and I thought, this isn't going to do anything. And then a month or two later, like, this huh. is amazing. I know. Right? I, I can't even think of a day going by without doing this. That's and, I, cool. and I don't know what it – they can't yeah. put their finger on it. Yeah. But there's something that's changed, and it's that deeper symbolism. It's it's establishing commitment without realizing it. No, I love that. And um, again, it doesn't have to be a big thing, but it could be – I call them hellos, goodbyes, uh, hello kiss, goodbye kiss, right. cuddle time. I always teach my clients 15 minutes of cuddle a day, two rules, no groping, no, gro- no griping. Right. So cuddle does not need to lead to anything, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't be full of negative talk. Right, yeah. But, and it, and they, they look at me like – Wow, I mean that's going to be hard. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, but you know, yeah. you used to do where, it when you were dating. Gonna, where am I going to find 15 minutes in my day? <laughs> I don't have 15 yeah, minutes to my spouse. Cuddle. Yeah. What are you talking about? Isn't it? They think we're crazy. Yeah. And we kind of are. A little bit. So good stuff. Brian, thanks, my friend. Uh, happy holidays to you. You too. That's great. You're done. You just got to get these students, done. get it graded, and you're out of here. Yep. I just throw random grades at everyone, <laughs> and I'll be out of here. ABC, ABC. Brian Willoughby's his name. You're not going to want to miss him. Go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com. Drbrianwilloughby.com. Great stuff. He just also came out with the book, The Marriage Paradox. Get that for your kids. That's right. That would, uh, it's, it's basically, it's the textbook on the paradoxical life we live in marriage. Good stuff. We appreciate it. Up next, BYU's uh, Sports Nation. They're going to be visiting us, our good brethren. We're, I don't know who it's going to be today. They've been, I think uh, Spencer's been sick, so we'll find out. That's straight ahead right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. It's time. It is that time when we go down and visit our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation to find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Today, it's Spencer and Jerem. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Matt. What's up? How you guys doing? Good. It's, it's BYU football uh, signing day. Yes. What are we? Are we finding out anything interesting? Four dudes, four dudes signed so far, 13 return missionaries. Uh, we're going to break it all down coming up on the show. Also, we will be live, by the way. Uh, t- later today on BYU Sports Nation. I have no idea whether we're live on radio. Mm. Uh, but, but on BYU TV, we'll be live at 6 Eastern. Uh, we'll be taped delayed at 7 Eastern, the normal time. Yeah. Uh, but it'll be a fresh show uh, <laughs> with Kalani Sitake, who will be breaking down the signees. Wow. So this is new. It's not like BYU is going to sign like a couple of guys. They're planning on going double digit here. Are they really? And they've signed four guys so far. And uh, 13 return missionaries will join the program. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. This is and this is a big day. But how do you measure it? Like, because we can get a lot of people signed. Ask me in seven years. By ounces. Is it by ounces or is it by foot? Is it like fruit leather? Do we do it by the foot? Ask me in seven years when all these guys have finished playing and they're all gone and done. Boring. We value (laughs) the people who will play right away more than we do the high school. Because they'll have a, a more immediate impact. Right. Although. All of these guys are of interest, some of which won't make it into school for whatever reason, potentially. There's always uh, a handful of dudes that just don't actually end up coming here for whatever reason. But rare is the superstar BYU player that doesn't get mentioned you know, on a signing day yeah. at some point. Like, it comes traditionally gen- most of the time. So today's, uh, today's an important day, but like Smith said, it takes several years. Now, to really evaluate right. and what uh, because the impact you, is. Of you always game. have, like, what do they call them? Like the third, what are they, a three, what, uh, don't they have different numbers? There are stars three, four, given by yeah. some organizations, which yeah. BYU hasn't always valued. But sometimes that's like rich people don't talk about how money isn't happiness. The <laughs> poor people do. Yeah. So <laughs> the stars are valued by those who get the stars, right? Right. Some of BYU's best players haven't been high-profile star guys, so that's uh, Jamal made... Williams, Dennis Pitta, yeah. Max Hall. There you go. Austin Colley. Just yeah. to name BYU's, a few. BYU's made, made uh, some good meals out of scratch, if you will. Like the majority of BYU's greatest players recently have not been 
big-time star guys coming out of high school. Yeah, and BYU doesn't get a ton of – BYU gets – group of five teams don't get any – or or non-Power Five don't get any five stars. Like one five-star all-time has gone to a Power Five. So BYU's had a handful of four stars, and generally those guys turn out to be good players. Mm. How many stars were you guys? No stars. Yeah, I was, I was a walk. I was an academic walk-on. Yeah, I remember that. But good looking. I was a preferred academic walk-on. Wow, <laughs> is that is that a little bit higher than just a walk-on? I don't know. <laughs> now, are you feeling better, Spencer? I'm I'm doing my best, Matt. I know I'm you. Jeff's got the same sickness, apparently. Well. Tell Jeff to prepare for his eyes to be glued shut at one point. Oh. Yeah, that's fun. You've got a little conjunctivitis. Oh, it's so awesome, isn't it? <laughs> Is I, You're going to be on the show yeah. with with your eyes sealed shut. This oh, ought no. to be fun. No, it's it's better now. I'm saying that 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 will happen if he has the same thing as me. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't want to see that. Mm. Okay. <laughs> going to have a... Uh, Gonna have a Bob Costa situation at the end. Oh, that was so bad. <laughs> His eyes were so red. I know the Sith was, Lord Bob Costa. Finally, like get out of here, get him off the air. And it's bad when you're watching and your eyes are watering. The for last him. two days were like, don't don't come in. Just, just look, Bobby. Poor Bob. Look, Bobby. It's not you, it's but the people don't want to watch anymore. You're a train wreck. Okay, well, that's good. And um, anything else that uh, is coming up on the show? Any other guests we need to know about? Gregor um, Bell and Jeff Judkins. Yeah, there you go. This is a this is a football signing day. It's all about football Let's signing go. day. Greg Rubel, and um, I'm sure you're going to have to pull out a little Juddy voice for Judkins. <gasps> well, football signing day, more like <laughs> BYU Women's Hoops Day. That's beautiful. And you is do it. there a better player than Jeff Judkins? No. Than Jacob Smith? A now six, that's six. Roland Minson basketball. <laughs> Roland Minson. <laughs> do you guys have the hat too? The red and blue hat. Uh, no. Bill no, Walton's favorite. Yeah. We're not. No. I get it. I we get it. We do have one Utah logo on our set, but we're not going to tell you where. You have to find it. I'm going to go look for it. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, knock him dead. Cannon, son of a dairy farmer, milk this. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting Bill Walton down, boys. That's good. Have a great show. That is uh, they, they, the funny thing about Spencer and Jerem is they they really are multifaceted. They can sing. They can dance. They golf. Uh, Spencer can create a, a version of pink eye that you've never seen. They're a quadruple before. threat. That's yeah. what it's called. Yeah. Plus, if you count the eyes... They're a sextuple th- threat. Sextuple? Sextuple. I don't know. I don't know either. Hey, um, so it is signing day at BYU. So, by the way, signing day, I think, all over the country. Early signing day. Um, and we're going to get all this excitement about, oh, we got this one guy, but then he's going to leave for two years on a mission, and then he might decommit and go somewhere else. So we should really just keep our excitement in check. Yeah. Okay. That's what we always like to do on the show is we like to lower expectations to <laughs> and moderate moderate your enthusiasm. Hmm. You know? I, I don't want to seem negative. It's just, it, you know, it is what it is. Now, we've got one more uh, story before we get yes. to our hero story about um, nail polish. 
Yeah. I didn't know that this is something that people stole. And either did I. Why don't you just but purchase it? But apparently it's a big problem. There's a 32-year-old New Jersey woman who's been charged with stealing 144 bottles of nail polish from CVS last month. What? So she was arrested Wednesday after she was caught shoplifting from another pharmacy. And uh, so, yeah, she was. Uh, she admitted to taking $63.98 worth of formula. While being processed on last week's arrest, police determined Esposito was responsible for the November 6th shoplifting incident where she allegedly stole $1,400 worth of nail polish. What? Yeah. That's a lot of... That's a lot of goo. Why would you need that much? And is is it the reset the resale value can't even be that much. There must just be a really good market for it. It just seems like an awful lot of, lot of trouble to go through for not a big payout. Yeah. Mhm. And I mean, I guess there's only half of the people that would I mean half of the population that's even buying it. Can you imagine like a nail polish raid on her house? They're pounding. The police are pounding down the door. She's trying to dump it all down the toilet. <laughs> it's, really, it's coming out really slow. <laughs> Darn it. We're going to lose. Okay. Well, uh, watch out for that. And be careful buying any uh, black market nail polish. You know, they always thin it out with paint thinner. Uh, our hero of the day is a soldier from Joint Base Lewis McCord. Says he saw the Amtrak train plunge from the overpass and jumped into action to help save the people trapped inside. This comes from Q13Fox.com. I saw many people that were just paralyzed with fear, and I don't blame them at all. I mean, it was kind of a hard situation to watch unfold, Second Lieutenant Robert McCoy says. Um, He hit the brakes on his pickup truck just in time. The train is going south. I'm just kind of driving, just driving, and I hear a loud noise. I look up and I see the train, and it hits the concrete walls on the side. And when it hits the walls, the walls kind of explode. The train just falls off. I see the train fall, and it kind of falls on itself and lands on um, a bunch of vehicles. Soldier from the soldier then jumped out of his car. He said, I remember I, I had learned to do a tourniquet and CPR and got grabbed a CPR mask out of my truck. I grabbed those, took off toward the incident. And uh, that's where he found individuals who had been ejected from the train. And he just went to work. McCoy went to work helping passengers um, and, and doing and administering first aid to them. So he is the hero of the day, a soldier and somebody willing to step up when times are tough. That was quite a tragedy, uh, that train accident. And to know that there are good people that will do what needs to be done, those are heroes, my friends. We'll be back again tomorrow. That's the show for now. But, hey, stick with BYU Broadcasting because Sports Nation is up next.